Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Here it comes again, lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations, limited time only, plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I am your co-host, Christopher Mukigana harrington joined by my North by Northeast by Mr. 489 himself, Brandon oh. Howard Thurston. Brandon, how are you today? Here I am, fine. How are you, Mookie? Good. Is it is it is it uh, thrilling or humbling to know that there's only 488 wrestlers that are better than you in the world right now? It's it's very dubious. I'll say that. Um, hmm. It's an honor to be in the PWI 500 every year, but I know that there are many wrestlers who are uh, very worthy who probably don't make it because they don't live in this area, unfortunately. So, uh, are you suggesting that, in fact, uh, you may or may not be better than Ho Ho Lin, uh, Jim Ellsworth, Zach Gowen, and uh, Cody Hall? Well, if they want to wrestle me, I guess we could find out. Or maybe, uh, or maybe, you could, <laughs> maybe you could run the ELO ratings and you could tell me. What year did you first get listed in PWI 500? 2010, I think. Wow, so you've been going strong for a while here. Is that, uh, uh, do, do you ever advertise using that? Ah. Uh advertise it how i mean people post well i remember one time stuff. one time eric everlast did a i'm coming back video yeah. and it was just like a series of things and then it was like mr 496 is here yeah i remember that so he was like when when i was starting out wrestling he was one of the guys who was you know he had the he had like a velocity match or something probably wasn't called velocity it was probably jacked or metal he had a match with like billy gunn so he was somebody who's kind of you know on the radar enough to be in the pwi 500 and when not many of us in, in this local area at least were so yeah i remember that 
And uh, just so you know, 49 is not a prime number. It's divisible by three, among others. So uh, just in case you're shooting for a prime one of these years, PWI, if you're listening, please, prime numbers for the Russell Nomic staff if you can. Uh, the one is acceptable. We will, one we will also number? take it. It is not. No. Why, is, why is one not a prime number? This is what everybody's tuning in for, by the way. But, but why, why is one not a prime number? Because you can't. What are the rules? What's the criteria of a prime number? Well, depends on what kind of number set you've defined and what rules you have. But essentially, it's usually around it's only divisible by itself in unity. And you could say that one is not because it's it doesn't have two factors that, in that way. But I, you know, it that that gets into the kind of it, it has more to do with the algorithmic, you know, the the creating the entire number system that you have. And, you know, we're talking natural numbers here and so forth in terms of what we're using as our definition of prime. You could have, you know, things that are relatively prime to each other and other definitions of sets. Maybe that's what I need to do is do more ring theory in, in professional wrestling. I, I wrote a, uh, a, a thing one time called like graph theory heels and faces or something that's on pay hip that people can search out and find that uh, has a little bit of fun math with me kind of discussing combinatrix and professional wrestling booking. And I don't think I get so much into, uh, you know, number theory as much, but uh, if, if that's your game, that's something you can check out. If you're looking for wrestling and number theory all in one paper. That's really yeah. Fun. We have so many topics to talk today and number theory was not one of them, but uh, 19 is a prime number though, isn't it? It is. And that is the number so. of topics that we have today, at least. For yes. The moment. So uh, a lot of different things going on. We, we've been off for a, a for you and I, we've been off for about two weeks. Uh, in reality, our listeners hopefully listened to our show we had with uh, Evan Deadly Sins W uh, talking New Japan wrestling and professional wrestling business in Japan. That was a lot of fun. And we're going to get into some articles that uh, came out later talking about New Japan and other things that, you know, I thought that was some really good prep work for me. So I didn't sound so foolish when I talked to some reporters. But I want to start us off with some GFW news, mm-hmm. uh, all the drama that's going on there. Do you want to break down some of the things that uh, has happened with GFW and in in a larger sense, why does it matter? Sure. So this was a, f- a couple days ago. Uh, we are recording on Thursday, but a couple days ago, GFW issued a statement, and it is a two-sentence statement on their website. It says, effective immediately, Jeff Jarrett is taking an indefinite leave of absence from his position as chief creative officer to focus on personal matters. Uh, he'll be available on a consultative basis uh, as needed. So it looks like Jeff Jarrett is out. Uh, that makes it sound like he's, he might still help uh, GFW here and there and do some consulting with, with them. But his uh, Twitter bio as of today has got n- no references to GFW or TNA. And it sounds like he's going to move on to other things. Um, so Sean Ross Sapp of Fightful.com reported that uh, Jeff Jarrett's fallen out of favor with Ed Nordholm, who is the, uh, the, the boss. I don't know what his official title is, but he's the guy at, at Anthem, which is the company that owns the thing that we call now GFW or formerly Impact Wrestling or formerly Total Nonstop Action. Um, and then the PW Insider uh, reported that G- GFW might even rebrand itself back to Impact because, yeah. Yeah, so Ed, Ed Nordholm is the executive vice president of Anthem Sports and Entertainment and a president of GFW It's is the title that I, I see online. Um, I'm trying to think, did Nordum come before the Anthem acquisition? Was he with the company uh, back when they were having all the money troubles? I think so. No, no, he, actually, he you know. the wrestling company, but he, I, I believe Ed Nordholm is an Anthem guy before. 
Yes, yes. He's a he is a business lawyer and seasoned executive with extensive experience in operations, M&A transactions, and corporate finance. And uh, works – and it's funny. On his LinkedIn, uh, his his like profile picture is actually Alberto Del Rio choking somebody. Uh, so <laughs> he's uh, he's definitely – and it, it says he, he's EVP and he's general counsel. So uh, he must – well, yep. Yep. He went to a, a law school back in the 80s actually uh, up in, in uh, York uh, in Ontario. So yes. So he – uh, you know, it, well, the one thing I've I've learned from, you know, law is that everybody knows some about something, right? They took a class because to become at least in the U.S. to take to become a lawyer, you have to take classes and you're going to have to do everything from real estate to contracts to deeds and estates to IP law to whatever. But there's so many levels to these things that it's kind of like the difference between math and and you know being an engineer versus being a theoretical mathematician versus being a you know um a, a coder you know you you all know math but you don't necessarily all know it at the same range and depth so i don't know whether his ip law you know history is the best or not it sounds like he does a lot of corporate finance and mma and things like that which usually that's a little bit less you know driven to ip law necessarily but sometimes it is uh, but IP law is really like like patent law is one of those things that's often its own little corner and is very different than say real estate law is very different than criminal law, you know, and that's why it's tough to go uh, to one lawyer and expect them to know everything about you know the situation you're in. It's funny I've talked to so many lawyers to be like, hey, what do you think the these outcome of the CM Punk lawsuit is? And they're like, yeah, I don't do that. Yeah, I, I can't help you. So it, it's interesting, but uh, yeah, so that's Ed Nordholm. He I I this GFW going back to Impact. That seems like so. This would imply that they didn't they didn't really get the rights or buy the rights or whatever. They didn't really get the rights to the name Global Force Wrestling, but they went ahead and rebranded everything Global Force Wrestling. I don't know if that's as much the situation as and if that's the case. I mean, maybe like, maybe it is in the sense that maybe they don't have a controlling interest in this idea, and so when Jeff Jarrett was associated with them, it was a, a convenient partnership, but. It's also just possible that they just want to have something that they have all the IP in the background with and that this branding everything as GFW is not really keeping people from associating it with TNA. And if they have to choose a name, Impact's the name they want to use. And, you know, with some of the other things that they're launching right now, maybe the word Impact is being used much more broadly. Because if if Jarrett still owns the Global Force Wrestling name, and, the, and, and somewhere in our notes here, I think we've got uh, something saying that GFW, you know, one, one of the things they said uh, amid all this term, turmoil is that they're not going to change. You know, they've rebranded too much. They feel they rebranded too much, so they're going to stick with the GFW name. But if that's the case, and, and they've renamed all the titles, GFW titles instead of TNA titles, right? So if, if that's the case, that they're not, they feel that they don't want to rebrand because they've done too much of it. Uh, and if Jeff Jarrett really owns the Global Force Wrestling name, why would Jeff Jarrett, especially if he's on the outs with anthem why would jeff jarrett allow that why wouldn't he just send them a cease and desist saying hey you're using this this intellectual property that belongs to me stop oh so that i mean a little bit of it would get into we'd have to really look up what does it mean to own gfw out and out you know are we talking about an llc are we just talking about the letters gfw are we talking about the name global force wrestling and, and, um, and it's more very, importantly was there any gold obtained in this transaction yeah exactly it's to me it's just like 
there's a difference between um, the company, Global Force Wrestling, and a title being called the GFW titles. Um, And in fact, you know, that kind of almost goes back to that belt lawsuit that I talked about a couple shows ago where, you know, Ring of Honor was basically the the argument being made by the belt manufacturers. we, We trademarked the the design of this belt. And so you can't go give another company the rights to make replicas of it. So it, it's funny sometimes exactly how that works in terms of um, whether you're talking about the copyright design of a belt versus the title name, because the title name is probably not something that's in any way being protected, uh, in my opinion. But let, let's focus even a little bit more on why Jeff Jarrett's being kicked to the curb. Uh, what What are the stories that are out there and what is your take on that? Well, it, I guess the last straw was his performance on Triple A Triple Mania, which you watched, which I did not see, but you can tell us about that uh, a little bit later. But I guess he had a he had a shouting match with um, Bob Ryder at one of the uh, TV tapings uh, a few months back. There's you know stories about Rebby Hardy receiving unprofessional drunk text messages from Jeff Jarrett. Um, and again, the, I guess the breaking point uh, was Ed Nordholm was there in Mexico for the AAA show, and, and I don't know if he was, you know, apparently there's, a, there's stories he was stumbling on the ring steps, and I mean his performance in the match wasn't very good, and I guess that was the last straw, and, and Ed Nordholm, uh, as of, I don't know if it was uh, earlier this week, decided to get rid of him, and... Uh, I just can't, I, just, I, just, I can't imagine, like, what, what a sales pitch Jeff Jarrett must have uh, given Ed Nordholm and or Anthem to uh, get himself in this situation in the first place. Sure. And, and you know, when you first read that, to me, it really does sound like someone who's being asked to go to rehab or something. Yeah. It, you know, it makes it sound that, like he was under the influence, maybe, and that's why he stumbled on, on the, uh, the steps. I don't know. But And then there's drunk text messages. Um, yeah. I know there, and, there, and, there's some... You know stories about you know the the Karen Jarrett and Braun Strowman story, and there's you know rumors about allegedly Jeff Jarrett was maybe a, in an altered state during that time. So. Yeah, so I mean, there's there's a lot going on there. I think a lot of this comes down to you have a Toronto-based company that has bought all these assets and getting this inherited history from people from Nashville, and it's tough to kind of always wield your sword. When there's certain people around that, you know, might be contradicting, undercutting or um, overshadowing you. And so that's that's certainly going to be part of this. Uh, it's interesting to see that, you know, they're going to have John Kaborik, uh, Scott Demore and Sanjay Dutt leading creative going forward here. Um, it's hard to say whether Karen, Jared or Bruce Pritchard will even be sticking around in the long term. Uh, what happens with Jim Cornette is obviously another big question mark. And uh, whether or not this will ever end, you know, the broken hearty IP story is always, you know, kind of that last thing. Because one, one of the stories it, here is, OK, they're 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 hemorrhaging money, according to, to Justin Brasso of Sports Illustrated. You know, they, they, they bought this thing for what was it, 12 million dollars or something like that. And uh, they've got very few revenue streams. They've got maybe some TV rights uh, money coming in from the UK and from India. The, the, the deal with Pop TV is a ad revenue share, as we understand. So And they renewed that through, I think, 2018, they said something about in The Observer, yeah. saying that, that that deal is continuing on. Yeah. And and they are, there's just not a lot that GFW has going in terms of clear revenue streams beyond, you know, obviously a little bit of merchandise, a little bit of live tours, 
um, any kind of sold shows that they can do. We talked and about that, a few episodes ago. They they ran. They tried to run three shows. One of them they had to cancel probably because of, of a poor advance. They ran two shows. One of them, you know, had a, a few hundred people in it. The the other one had a few more hundred people in it in a, in a very empty looking baseball stadium. And if you listen to the um, you know the conversation that Matt Hardy uh, talked about with that he recorded with Ed Nordholm where he was saying, you know, I'm not going to resign with the company. I believe one of the sticking points was this debate about whether or not outside bookings, TNA, GFW, whatever you want to call them, was going to take a cut of contracted talent where a piece of the, you know, the, the booking money would go to GFW regardless of, you know, whether GFW had anything really to do with the show besides the fact they were using that talent. So that's another tiny revenue stream, obviously, but um, right. and, and, not and a that's popular a, That's a very one. like gray issue as far as I understand. Like I, I know they, they want to take a cut of everybody's indie, indie bookings, which is what you're referring to, right? Um, yeah. And, and from, like from what I've heard from some, some people who, who try to book people from Impact or GFW or whatever it's called is – I don't know. If you go through TNA – Maybe you have to they, – they, they take that cut, but then there's people taking bookings maybe not through TNA and uh, you know not dealing with Bob Ryder or whatever it is. And uh, it, I don't know. It seems very uh, inconsistent. Sure, sure, and I'm not surprised by that at all. Uh, the one thing that they did announce that has been kind of getting a little bit of um, hype has been this, this GFWOTT, if there's not enough acronyms there, the, the Global Force Wrestling, Global Wrestling Network over-the-top service. Before we get to that, we should point out that – According to Sports Illustrated, that there's talk of Anthem wanting to sell GFW. Um, yeah, and I think that kind of dovetails with the story because it, it's this idea to say, what are the things that GFW has? Are they monetizing those assets? Are and does it help or hurt their case if they go out there and say launch a network that has all this content on it? Does that help or hurt them? Um, in terms of their ability to kind of say that this is a marketable thing. And so uh, that's why I think this this release is so interesting, is saying that, you know, we're going to give, quote, fans access to the extensive GFW and Impact libraries, and you can go to globalwrestlingnetwork.com. And uh, the thing that probably was most interesting to me is Pluto TV, which if you have Roku, um, you can go to, and they have like a 24-hour mst3k channel and they have other movie channels and apparently they're launching this wrestling channel did you say you already installed this i have hulu running on my computer right now and it's i had no idea this thing existed it's kind of like the uh what, what hulu was when they when they would you know put free content on there from actual tv channels there's a bunch of tv channels some of them are i've heard of some of them i've never heard of before there's uh i think there's uh, sky news is on here the uk news channel the food food tv i'm not sure if that's food network but there's a ton of channels on here and one of them is so they have cnbc cbs news nbc news things like that um, basically it's a lot of, of channels on here is the pro wrestling channel which at the moment is playing nothing but tna pay-per-views uh on repeat and there's the there's something called fight but that doesn't appear to be the fight network from canada because otherwise it would be playing uh, impact right now uh or at least tonight and it doesn't it doesn't appear to be doing that and then there's a, a glory kickboxing channel for all for all the kickboxing fans out there and bill goldberg yeah, so I, I – because I had I looked around this Pluto a bunch, and a lot of it is just channels that kind of want to say that they're in more homes than they really are. So when you get to those kind of CNBCs or those, you know, the weather channel type things, 
uh, a lot of times it's carriage things where they just want to be able to to advertise, hey, we have this many homes. And one of the arguments that's been made before is that so many people are stuck in banks or airports and whatnot. And so it's not really fair, the numbers that they're using, because those are channels that are being streamed in those kind of venues. But um, it's interesting to see Pluto kind of scooping up and trying to get those those channels additionally. But, yeah, this this it's it's you know, my, I have friends that don't have cable, have no way to watch TNA, you know, might not even have Hulu subscriptions. And, you know, they were telling me, hey, I'm going to check out this thing on Pluto and it's going to be cool. So I think it's it's good in that sense that it gets them a little buzz. It's on a what I would call a reputable um, channel aggregator. It's not, you know, something that's in the one percent of of channels. It's something that I had actually stumbled upon just myself when I was looking for things to download on my Roku. So I, I, I feel like heard it's of this thing before today, and I'm somebody who's never subscribed to cable, you know, ever. But uh, so that's interesting to see, like, you know, them and they're pushing, you know, the Hogan, the Flair, the Sting, the Angle, the Nash, the Jarrett, the AJ Styles, the Samoa Joe, the Bobby Roode people saying that these are the people that you're going to see footage of. So, you know, it's it's clear that they're going back to that older footage. And also it, it suggests that they have, you know unlimited rights to use that footage and market it which is interesting too because you always wonder about those kind of really super high priced talent whether or not there was any restrictions put on there for a hogan or a flair or someone about their ability to uh do it and at the same time it's also interesting to see what names they don't mention you know you don't see a foley in there you don't see a um yeah the hardys obviously that's great great example um, you know, you'd almost think they would be just playing the, uh, the, the Hardy, the broken Matt Hardy episodes over and over again to <laughs> continue to rub it in. But, uh, and to show that that's their IP, look, we're using it. Yeah. So, I mean, that's interesting to me because it, in a way it undercuts your ability to sell that package, right? Because it's not necessarily so new and hot. If you go try to sell it to WWE on the positive side, I think it can prove that maybe there's a larger market for it and actually improve your visibility, especially to people that, like I say, that might be cord cutting. And then on top of that, you don't know if there might be actually a transaction involved in that. So maybe Pluto is spending some money to put them on or doing at least an ad share with them on some of the, the commercials they might be running on that. And there are I, ads on this thing. It's uh, it's not like a traditional commercial break. It's just like uh, it, there must be a timer or something every so many minutes, an ad. Yeah, it's kind of like YouTube. If you're watching a whole series of like, a playlist on YouTube and then in between there they'll, they'll throw ads. Uh, so I, I think it's, it's very possible that, you know, it's, it's a neat move by them. And at the same time, it's just with using the word global in the, the name of this in the, the com in the OTT service, it just doesn't seem like to me that it would be a good idea to suddenly run away and suddenly be, make everything impact again. Yeah. Well, I, I think this press release, that they put out the other day serves multiple purposes and that first of all it it sort of tries to drown out all the all the bad news with jeff jarrett and uh there's talk of anthem being interested in selling this wrestling property and maybe the potential suitors would be what wwe maybe ring of honor sinclair broadcasting probably not though uh maybe billy corgan it sounds like probably not though but i I think what they're doing is saying hey look we're and they're and they've denied whatever, probably to the observer or whatever it is, that they're not really interested in, in selling impact. Uh, and I think what they're doing is saying, hey, look, we're going to put out this OTT service. We're doing all this stuff. We're, we're on 
Pluto. We're going to start airing Impact, you know, OTT. We're going to, you know, we've got our, we're extending our TV, you know, deal with, with Pop TV. We're going to Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. Impact's going to play there again to show people that, hey, we really are trying to do something here, which I think it, it's less of a fire sale that way, isn't it? It's like, it's, it's less of a like, oh my God, we got to get out of this thing. Yeah, and, and I don't even know if I would discount the Billy Corgan angle as much because um, he's shown a willingness to throw good money after bad. He was part of TNA for a period of time there. And so, you know, you never know about someone's kind of selfishness to own a piece of what they made and, you know, kind of have it. And if someone were to buy it and sit on it, he would be someone who would actually be decent for that because – you know, he's the type of guy that might trade it as collateral for something else he wants or, you know, sell it to either the Houston library people and, you know, bring it in in that direction or, you know, use it as a way for him to have his, you know, 10 minutes of fame on WWE somehow. So I, I actually could see a Corgan kind of going that direction. ROH Sinclair, I just don't see them having their uh, stuff together well enough to kind of understand how to market it and use it in a in a conceivable way. Because Ring of Honor itself doesn't have an OTT service. They could maybe sell some DVDs. I'm I'm at a loss to think of how else they would monetize whatever property they would gain from purchasing. Well, the only advantage I'd, I'd see, and you know, I, I think asking Lavi or someone would be a, a great great example here. But you know, you could see it if hey, you're running an OTT sports network already, and maybe uh, Ring of Honor alone is not the right thing for it. Maybe putting this impact stuff is better. Because honestly, if you're a out-of-touch sports executive and I offer you the choice between Roderick Strong and Hulk Hogan footage, I think I know which one you're going to gravitate towards, right? Mm -hmm. So it, there is something to be said with you know some of those sports network OTT services that Sinclair's kind of been putting their toes in the water with that maybe there would be a, a better reception even to impact stuff because it's a little bit um, higher quality in terms of production values. Uh, not necessarily in wrestling content in all the years. Some of the years it's been great wrestling content, but I could even see it playing a little bit better. And of course, it would be resentful, you know, to see them undercut their own service to go somewhere else. But if I was Sinclair, I would see some money in there. Um, but again, this is all, you know, the debate about whether or not they're really trying to pull the plug and get out of this game. And it seems like the Fight Network, uh, even more than Sinclair, is willing to kind of tread water a lot longer on TNA and, and Global Force. And, and honestly, we're still in the, the honeymoon period of this relationship. Maybe Jeff Jarrett leaving is the end of the honeymoon, but it's it's still a relatively recent transaction for them. Yeah. I, I just feel overall, like, wrestling, pro wrestling as is, is a, is a, is a business uh, endeavor is is a really difficult thing to do well especially in the United States, or at least lots of people haven't done it that well. And in, in the case of something like TNA, uh, the people who really make the decisions at, at, at TNA uh, throughout its history have been you know, people who aren't necessarily students of wrestling, people like Dixie Carter and people like maybe Ed Norholm. So that what ends up happening is they get manipulated by people like Jeff Jarrett and, or maybe Vince Russo. And... and TNA, I think, throughout its history has been sort of a derivative version of pro wrestling, as it, you know, as derivative of WWE. It's run by a lot of people who came through WWE, and and that makes it sound like well, they have really have credibility. Look, Vince Russo was the head writer or whatever during the Attitude Era, which was a super hot period for for WWF. Uh, so they come to TNA, and instead of you know, 
having a exciting and new vision for pro wrestling, they just it just comes off as WWE light, and and, and I think it's just going to be this way until this company eventually dies, and it's really unfortunate because. What we could have had, if, if I think, if somebody was more of a visionary behind this company and understood the business and studied it uh, more, we would have something that could have been more of a competition for WWE, which could have been beneficial to the business in just so many ways. Yeah, and and I think when the history is told, losing Spike in my mind was the death knell. Yeah, you know, I, I remember this- 2005. Like I, I was, you know reading the observer every week and you know really into the history of the business and where it was going in the present and i remember in, in 2005 when you know uh, impact had its first episode on spike i remember just being like oh my god i'm watching wrestling history here i because i had felt as, as a fan and as somebody who was following the business like in 2001 when wcw nitro went, went off the air and wcw wasn't on tv anymore it really felt like this is going to be it it's just going to end ecw's dead too and it's just going to be wf on TV, it's going to be WF is going to be the only promotion of any profile for the foreseeable future, maybe forever. And and, and you remember there was talk at the time of like, well, may, maybe you know, because WF was cooling off at the time, and well, maybe the business is really going to go into a, a tailspin. Um, and when in 2005, when they when TNA got on TV, I was I, I just remember like that that first uh, you know opening sequence, I just felt like, oh, this is it. This this could be you know a really good thing for the business and. Here we are, what, 12 years later. <laughs> yeah, and I, th- I think so many of those ideas were kind of similar to WCW, which was, hey, we have stars that still have some legs to them. Let's right. bring them back. But unfortunately, now you're bringing them back the third time after, you know, you wonder about whether they still had legs. And right, it's just a derivative diminishing returns. And I, I've yeah, yeah. Like, like Kevin, Kevin Nash was old by 2005. He was even older by 2015. And so. It, it just got weaker and weaker and, and the ECW re- reunion and whatnot just continued to kind of limit its ability to expand. And, you know, as, as many have said, when you look out there and you see the worlds of the PWGs or the Japanese scene or the UK scene specifically, you know, I would argue Impact was – I mean UK – Impact, uh, Global Force Wrestling, whatever you want to call them, TNA was ahead of the curve on trying to get into the UK market with the newest stuff that was happening there. Uh, because while WWE has had a very long history there, you impact was the one that was like, Hey, we're going to do a British boot camp. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And they actually started putting their eyes and their resources and their vision towards that UK market and trying to find that younger talent. And I felt like they squandered that kind of lead that they had, especially in that marketplace. Same in India. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, um, so we're talking about there's, there's a story of, of somewhere like you, if you ask a gold goldfish, you know, what's water and the goldfish says, what the hell is water? And I just feel like the, the people in charge of TNA, especially maybe like the Dixie Cars and Ed Nordholms, like they if you ask them, they, they only have one vision. Of, they only have have ever seen pro wrestling as being one thing, as being WWE. And it doesn't even occur to a lot of people that pro wrestling could be anything other than something that just looks like derivative WWE. Oh, yeah. And I felt that way when I was watching their their battle royal a few weeks ago. And I was just thinking, wow, this is just (laughs) this couldn't even be on superstars because it just was not inspired in any way. And it just felt, you know, like you have the luxury now of great talent that you could be using in so many ways. And instead, you're presenting something that feels old and haggard and slow and weak. And even when you bring in, you know, a guy like Dick Justice, 
you know, you're using him as a terrible comedic. You using him the same way WWE used Colt Cabana. You know, you're taking a comedic guy who's got some good natural charisma and you're just leaving him with a stupid gimmick and then just kind of saying you're not very good at this and then throwing throwing it away. And you almost wonder why bother it when you do that with someone. Right. I, I feel if you, you look at their approach to talent, it, it feels like not not just a derivative approach to talent uh, from WWE, but it, it's it's WWE's approach to talent from maybe 10 years ago or at least Triple H and NXT and all this stuff. He's got a more evolved view, view of wrestling whereas you know in tna i, th- I think they value the it's mus- tough enough they, season they value, one mentality they value yeah. the tall muscular guy and uh you know and and the, the manly ring names you know yeah it's funny sometimes when i see these names and i'm like oh, who the heck is baron dax and then you have to you know go and google and like oh he was this guy in developmental and this guy and, and there have been some you know i there there have been people who have certainly made their lot much better in in tna you know ethan page undoubtedly has done so much better there than he he ever did in in wwe developmental uh, but it's just I think it's going to be funny in the end when we can finally build the giant chart. You know, I have my giant the Titanic taxonomy of wrestler names chart next to me on the wall here. And it has all the wrestler names. And, you know, they're, they're in different groups here like professions and, and inanimate objects and animals. And so it's everything from, you know, mantars in the animal category to uh, uh sensational sherries in the superlative physical or metaphysical attributes category but i feel like there'll be one called uh people who wrestled in tna and it'll just be everyone that you've ever imagined and you'll just be like how did they have everyone that we ever imagined and still you know never made it with the cm punk all the way to the rob van dam of the world right uh but we've talked longer about gfw and and tna than most most of our listeners are going to watch footage from those shows this year um i watched uh after after our our discussion of twitch uh two weeks ago i i went all in on twitch man i i i I dug in i i made it work i made it happen and uh just because i felt like i have to i have to start to understand this because one of one of our our great fans basically said he was screaming at his podcast player as he listened to us try to understand what Twitch oh, was. No. Uh, and so that night I, uh, I went ahead with Twitch and I, not only did I watch triple mania on Twitch, are you, are you leaving the analog world and joining us in the digital world? Maybe, maybe not only did I watch triple mania on Twitch, but I even went as far as to broadcast my own Twitch, uh, stream. Yes. Yes. And so there's a Twitch stream. And then I later uploaded the video of the stream to make sure that anyone who wasn't watching live could, in fact, enjoy it. And so it's an hour and a half of me working in Excel. Oh, I didn't know that. (laughs) With me commentating in real time as I work in Excel. Well, I know what I'm watching tonight. Yeah. So it is it though I will say uh if you actually followed all the steps you would discover that I screwed up terribly in the middle of it. And so <laughs> it, it cuz the results I got were not work usable in the end because I did some I screwed like I I doubled up all the tag teams where I I put the same person twice and then I lost the second player somewhere. So if anyone does watch it <laughs> please do tell me CLO where it's stuff or what? Yeah, actually, it was. Well, the idea was I was going to show how to do ELO, but first I was going to say, here's how you take the raw data from Cage Match and turn it into uh, the files I use, which is by person, you know, by time. I've always eight, wondered how you would, do that. I'm sure. Yeah. So it's, <laughs> so it's me. Doing, 
Yeah, so it's me doing that in real time, and it took me about 75 minutes to take this giant data set and turn it into that. And by that time, I was exhausted from, like, doing it in real time and at the same time, you know, like, trying to commentate on it, which is hard because usually when you work on this stuff, you just kind of do it silently to yourself. And so it's odd to kind of try to say, okay, this is why I'm doing this. This is why I'm doing this. This is what I've learned. And uh, I'm sure if anyone here who knows... You need a soundtrack, though. Yeah, and so... Well, originally I was going to have a soundtrack and then when I uploaded it to YouTube, it immediately found the soundtrack and was like, we will not allow it because of that. So then I you got to get in the Creative Commons music. Yeah. So I I decided to do it without it. So it's even more sad of me (laughs) just doing improv, you know, doing not improv, doing Excel uh, for 75 minutes straight. But yes, but I, I did my own Twitch stream just to try it out. And I, I, you know, broadcast that I was doing that. And, uh, it's funny now, if you search for like Microsoft Excel Twitch, I think I come up as one of the first people though, according to my, my Twitch source, I am not the only one who does Microsoft Excel on Twitch, but I will say I did not find a lot of other people doing it. So, uh, it, it was entertaining to me, but that night I then sat down and I watched triple mania on Twitch and, um, what I, what I will say, first of all, is that uh, as a OTT service, I found it tremendous because I could put it up on my television through my Roku. I could watch full screen. I had no buffering problems. I had no issues whatsoever. And I sharp looked, picture, right? Yeah, it looked great. And so that Bible stream, it didn't buffer and compared to restart it 10 times. Yeah. Compared to the horrific stories I've heard about AAA pay-per-views in the past. I think this was a huge win and it really won me over to the idea of using something like Twitch to watch live events as a really easy to use, you know, like it was easy enough for me to install the software and, and broadcast myself doing something. So it, it, for proof of concept, I really liked it. And I'm, I'm actually thinking about doing some Twitch streams myself for like uh, some Infocom games or something that uh, stuff that I enjoy actual, actual twitching. Uh, so that might happen to, future but yeah i watched uh, most of the triple mania a uh, card i watched probably the uh the last three or four matches for real and then i watched maybe the first in the middle some of it on my phone and we were watching something else on tv that night so i kind of watched a little bit of both but yeah i watched the main events and it I, was I uh, the last couple of minutes I, I i caught wagner unmasking yeah so you know it was they according to to uh dave and the observer they did seventeen thousand in attendance they had maybe fourteen thousand paid so that's like almost you know six hundred twenty five thousand dollars uh in gate uh sounds like wagner had a monster payoff for a mask match probably the most expensive mask in the history of mexico uh in current dollars of of the equivalent of two hundred and fifty five thousand dollars and his opponent you know psycho clown the one that they really wanted to give the push to which he had the uh he brought in his little i think it was his daughter into the ring at the end and his daughter also had the same spike pants that he was wearing and it's it's hilarious just the the visual of these two people wearing clown masks with these spike pants you know and it's father father and child uh but he only made forty five hundred dollars allegedly so it just that that difference there of a 50x payout um two percent of wagner's pay it, it kind of reminded me of of the story where it was bob holly told in his book about how angry he was when he uh, did the royal rumble with i think it was with brock where 
he was doing like a title challenge and yeah. he got something. Title like, match. This is Rumble 2003, I think. Yeah, and he got like four or five grand for it, and he was really pissed off because he was like, you know, I was in the main event because I I challenged for the title, and they're like, no, you were the transitional guy that we use in the month when we're going to have the Rumble as the big event. Um, and so it, it was just, it just reminded me of that a little bit of, I don't think Brock in that match made $255,000 this way. Uh, though nowadays Brock Rumble will. 2004, sorry. Yeah. But, uh, just it, kind of that, just that fascination of that, you know, Wagner and Atlantis, you know, have, have for years and years and Wagner and LA park for years and years kind of threatening to do mask matches and then just declining them. And, uh, he ended up making the big payoff in the end. And, uh, you know, he, Observer Wagner Atlantis in 2007 were offered $37,000 to for one of them to lose their mask, and they they both declined it. And in 2012, uh, L.A. Park and Wagner were were trying to get 77,000 to lose their mask, and they couldn't get it. But here we are in 2017, and Wagner got 255,000. Yeah, I mean, and again, a legend, a, a lucha libre legend. You know, Dr. Wagner Jr. and and a you know, he did really reference, I think, his Wagner maniacs at one point in his promo. <laughs> but, uh, you know, super charisma, uh, not a super duper match. I was legitimately shocked by the outcome. I guess if you're a Lucha insider, you shouldn't be that surprised um, because it, the writing was on the wall. But I think just the politics were a little bit surprising, especially when they were saying, you know, Wagner brought his son out, brought all these people. And then if you had watched earlier in the show, the psycho clowns were all over this event. And yet none of them came out in the main event, which was a big surprise because the whole every match was just covered in interference and uh, just garbage happening left and right. So it was kind of shocking that, you know, there wasn't that happening in this event with Psycho Clowns faction coming out in any way, which some people took to mean, well, then he's actually Wagner is doing the job because Psycho Clown doesn't have to bring defense to uh to protect himself so I, I thought that was interesting they you know they the people that were watching the stream said we got up to about seventy two thousand viewers um yeah. with about 85 percent of at, a peak, at the peak moment probably about the probably around the time of the finish or the unmasking yeah and so they were saying you know about 85 percent of those people watching the the triple a spanish channel and then about 15 percent on the english channel i was watching the english channel um just because i speak absolutely no spanish and i thought hey you know this might be helpful and it was not helpful. <laughs> it was, it was. Who was doing the commentary? Uh, I think it was Kevin Gill and um, let's see who else was it on on. I mean, I I didn't tune in at the very top. Uh, it was Kevin Gill and a guy who actually did speak Spanish because um he was he was trying to do like you know real time uh, uh changes of of what uh Gabriel Ramirez was the other person um and. Honestly, I had to go to Twitter over and over and over again and say, who is this person? Who is going on? And Lucha Blog was was a saint that night in answering everyone's questions. Um, I will say from an attraction point of view, like like I say, my, my wife isn't a huge wrestling fan. She'll enjoy it either a really interesting match or a really flashy match. You know, like she watched Cena Nakamura with me. She watched um, Ricochet and um, – uh, Osprey with me. Uh, she even watched some of Kenny Omega uh, Okada with me. But she she usually doesn't watch. But if there's spectacle, she'll watch. So, you know, some of these AAA matches, just, you know, like Mr. Aguilera, uh, uh, the former S.A. Rios, was dressed up all in blue. 
and just like was the weirdest looking thing. And then, of course, the monster clown and, and all those guys just look insane. And then Aerostar climbed to, you know, this light fixture and did a dive. And it was just this. That was the scariest thing I think I'd ever seen in my life. Uh, but I had to keep going to Twitter and being like, who is this? What is this? Because the announcers themselves would just be like, I don't know. It's that guy. Hey, uh, maybe it's this guy. Who's this guy? And like they didn't recognize, you know, when when some guys came in from Crash, they didn't know who they were. They didn't really follow the storyline of most of the things. So they got a lot of flack. I mean, equivalent to the kind of the Jim Ross flack from the New Japan event of not knowing their stuff before going in there. And they blamed it on not getting a packet from AAA and not getting, you know, briefed. But uh, of course, a lot of other people just kind of followed up with, you know, you you hired people who don't know the product to try and talk about the product, and you know that's not good enough. So it it, it was a um it, that turned off some people. I can so I, I'm guessing some people went to the Spanish just because then it became white noise and you could hear the crowd rather than you know listen to two guys who didn't know what was happening. Uh, the same thing. The Twitch chat offered no value. I mean, it's like. If you've ever seen kind of real-time chat stuff where there's thousands of people on, it's scrolling by at the speed of light, and it's just people doing crazy icons and, you know, just giving – it's like being on AOL in ninety in 1995, you know, like – In a chat room with 60,000 people. Yeah, it was like – The English and the Spanish? No, it's probably just the English if you're watching the English, right? Cause it's a, yeah, but I switched to the Spanish a few times, and it was funny because a lot of the comments were in Spanish. And so I was amused that, like, you know – I won't say that the majority of the the viewers of the Spanish channel, I think, were actually uh, Spanish speaking people. So that was really interesting to me, too. Um, And, you know, if you want to take something away from it, you know, 72,000 people are willing to use Twitch. Uh, Maybe 60 some thousand people are willing to, you know, subscribe to New Japan World. One and a half million people are willing to get WWE Network. Uh, It it speaks a lot to just the, the chasm of you know penetration difference that's going on here and triple a didn't really you know they got the word out that they were doing this on twitch but i don't feel like it was a all hands on deck campaign i would say most people didn't know about this um necessarily unless you were really tuned into the wrestling media i certainly found out kind of late in the game and uh, i'm really glad i got to watch it of course it was going up against mayweather uh uh and uh mcgregor and so that had a lot of you know impact too in japan in Mexico, well, they, it was actually the gimmick, shown. The gimmick was it's Mayweather and McGregor uh, happened, and then they did the main event. Yes, and so they they literally did um, in Mexico. It just was on television. The Mayweather McGregor match uh, was fight was for free on television, and then following that, they showed this match. And so in the Observer, they were saying, you know, this probably had somewhere between ten and twelve, and I've even seen other people, you know, use bigger numbers of thirteen to fifteen million people. Uh, in Mexico that were watching it. And so if you say what is a match that has been broadcast to X many millions of people in North America, this would be one of the most watched matches of the last couple decades. So that's really impressive. Probably since Hogan and Andre Saturday night main event. You know, it's it it would be more people than were probably watching uh, that Austin Undertaker uh, July 99 uh, when it peaked there. Uh, whether or not there was another time that more wrestling, you know, I'm sure there's other NBC things that, you know, reached a whole lot of people. But, yeah, I, I think they've seen here in more than 25 years and 25 years ago is about 1988. Well, 25 years ago, wouldn't that be like 
No. Well, no, no. <laughs> that would be more like 1992. So that's why I say it, it's possible that you, maybe one of those network specials uh, that was shown, even Saturday Night's main event. Yeah, I think the peak was definitely, you know, Hogan Andre. But if other specials of that time period also had large viewership that would have been in the 20 million, you know, range or whatever. Uh, but, yeah, it's 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 fascinating. I think this Twitch thing has a lot of potential. I still think it's primarily a gaming platform. You know, even things like I talk about my silliness of wanting to do Excel you know, I couldn't even choose Microsoft Excel as the game or the platform I was doing it on because uh, it, it tries to basically find the game that you're playing and deal with it. So it, it's not it, it's a little bit of round hole square peg at times. But, you know, Wrestle Circus has obviously embraced it really heavily. I'm glad AAA is doing something here in America that doesn't involve, you know, having to go on to Mexican websites and submit my credit card to watch their product. So so, I, so what if, if I'm AAA? Why is this beneficial to me to put my biggest show of the year on Twitch? Is it are they getting any any sort of payment from Twitch itself for this, or is it just exposure? Hard to say. Uh, it's very possible. You know, we we talked about it um, that in the future there's a lot of opportunity in terms of the way that people right now are monetizing their Twitch streams, where you know they might say you know click here and you can buy the merchandise of this person on the screen. You know, click here for this Amazon. Russell Circus is doing tips. Yeah, and or you could tip them, exactly. So I could see in the future even a AAA type thing where, you know, they're showing this and then you can buy the Wagner Maniac shirt. And, you know, hell, if they were selling that, I would have bought one of those from Amazon that night. You know, so I can see some monetization. And even for small indies, I think it is. I don't think there's a lot to lose. And I think if it becomes a certified, you know, um, phenomenon that, you know, people expect to go there – that this is a better centralized service. What it says to me, though, is that um, the barrier to getting people to watch over-the-top wrestling being streamed, especially wrestling that is not in English in North America, is high. And, you know, I think it's easy to kind of overstate this, this fantasy scenario where suddenly Raw or SmackDown becomes a network-exclusive property compared to the reality that we're still a long ways off from when we're going to have enough eyeballs glued to these things to make it both economically viable, but also in terms of uh, a number two or number three, making it hugely viable for them. Yeah. They're not ubiquitous enough in, in enough people's lives yet. Um, yeah. So if to go back to why is AAA doing this, I would think like one benefit would be if I'm AAA and I'm self-aware, I know that, that triple mania has got a, a bad history of trying to do video streaming in the past and did it on a, pay-per-view basis so that people are actually paying and then being mad because they got bad video service or whatever so maybe this is a let's show everybody that we can do this without screwing it up and then maybe later we'll start charging people for it it's a possibility i think even more and i don't even know if they do do twitch streams that cost money I, i'm not sure if that even exists uh, well, I'm not even saying next time they're going to do it on Twitch, sure. but maybe next time they're going to do it somewhere else so they can monetize it. I, I would say I think anything that raises your profile in another country, it, the the opportunity cost is low, right? So the the idea here that you know the, they still get the big live gate, it doesn't sound necessarily like people were staying home because they knew they could watch it on a stream service. Um, someday AAA has, you know, for the last 25 years has been saying they're going to tour the United States. And at times they've kind of dipped their toe in the water with either Lucha Underground or, or, or AAA shows periodically. But I think raising their profile in the U S is big. 
And I think using a service like Twitch is good because, you know, I, for the first time in, you know, 20 years can tell you something about AAA having watched it. Right. And so that that's worth something in my mind. And it's not like WWE's do, doing a great job at capturing the, uh, the Spanish speaking or Latin American market. No, not at all. And, you know, this kind of proves that there is a, a demand in that sector and and some bigger opportunity there. And so it was it was an interesting experiment. It was fun for me uh, as someone who was not interested in the slightest in spending any money on Mayweather. Uh, it was nice to, you know, have something else to do during that. And then, of course, on Twitter, I was able to find some pirated feed and see the last round in real time. So it just worked out. Um, you know, I'm sure they're they're going to be, you know, going crazy trying to hunt down all those people and sue them who were, you know, illegally broadcasting it. But even to that same effect, you know, obviously 80,000 is a, a hell of a lot less than four and a half or six million people. But um, no issues with the Twitch stream, unlike the traditional pay-per-view stream for the Mayweather fight, where lots of people had issues from everything from UFC TV to Comcast. Do you want to talk about Mayweather and uh, Yeah, why don't we why don't we just knock that one out? Um it, it's it's appropriate to kind of just say it was a huge fight. It uh people felt in from my impression of it that McGregor did much better than they expected. I yeah. think I, I I watched it live with a, a group of wrestlers and like and there were did, people cheering for Mayweather, some people cheering for McGregor, and I was shocked that in the in those first three rounds or whatever it was, he's handling himself and i was like oh my god he's gonna he's gonna beat him i don't know that much about Do, boxing well that's my thing do you think mayweather was was dogging it or just protecting himself and knowing that mcgregor was the type that was going to punch himself out I, I don't know enough about boxing to to try to analyze it but you know yeah i, I from what i know i think he was just trying to let, let, let him get tired and let him try to take his shots and then i'll just pick him apart and that's it's it like to me and again, also, I think he's an older man uh, fighting right now, you know, yeah. and so there's those elements where it's hard sometimes to differentiate between someone who's smart enough to know not to kill themselves and someone who's making it competitive and someone who is, you know, maybe looking like, for weaknesses Mayweather, like was barely even throwing punches at him in those first few rounds. It was ridiculous from what I read that, you know, some of the boxing people seem to be scoring every round for Mayweather and it seemed pretty ridiculous that they were giving some of these rounds to him when McGregor was clearly dominating him though I I would obviously say I don't know whether Mayweather was in as much danger as some people seem to think it was I think as a spectacle it largely delivered because it was a much longer fight than people expected and it was um, McGregor came out looking much better than I think most people expected Exactly, because I think a lot of people, I think like Max Kellerman of ESPN or wherever he works, was predicting that McGregor's not even going to land a punch, and he landed quite a few punches. It's it was a situation where somebody really benefited from losing, but but they lost, and they looked a lot better than a lot of people expected. Yeah, and I was never sure whether or not this was going to be ultimately good or bad. Like I said earlier, what I think was the biggest loser was the the Nevada Commission. Because they they showed themselves to be toothless and heartless in their willingness to sanction such a thing. And to me, it's like, hey, if you want to go to Macau and do this, fine, go to Macau and do it. But when you hold it on U.S. soil and then you still pretend to be an athletic commission, I find it to be egregious. But that's, you know, that's the... the... Do you think as competitive as it was, though, they still shouldn't have uh, allowed it? Yes, because they, especially things like changing the glove weights and whatnot, 
for no discernible reason. You know, to me, to me, either you're a promoter or you're a, a commissioner. And for you to be wearing both hats, kind of winking one at the other makes me uncomfortable. But that's, you know, that's just that's where I come down on it. Um, you know, I, I think regulators have a job to do. And, hey, great, it worked out. What if it didn't? You know, what if someone was was, you know, what if it was a one sided battle? Uh, does that make would I have still had the same criticism? Yeah. So I, I guess I'm, I can say I'm sticking to my guns by saying, regardless of how it turned out, I still think it was the wrong move on their part because it, it goes in the face of all the criteria you're supposed to use to judge these sort of things. So the commission take does the commission take a cut of the gate? Of course, right? yeah, funds them. Much of, yeah, it, fifty-five million dollars. Fifty-five point four million, and way under the seventy-two point two that uh, Mayweather Pacquiao did. Uh, tickets were much less. They only did about thirteen thousand actual sold tickets compared to the almost eighteen thousand seats they had. And uh, Mayweather Pacquiao probably did sixteen thousand. And of course, a lot of it comes to the same kind of thing that WWE is dealing with now, which is. Uh, Enzo Mori was not one of those comps, by the way. Every time you sell out an arena, you 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 go back and you think, oh, God, what if I just raise the prices more? You know, what's that inflection point? And, you know, it, obviously with these sort of things, these are these are the that edge of statistics where you don't get to do it. Lots and lots of sampling. Right. So you have to choose a number and go with it. And uh, they went with it. And, you know, it, it seemed like a, a lot of people were going to it and a lot of people spent a lot of money going to this event. Um, but it also. I guess actually I can do some math here, can't I? To say I was what the say, what is the average ticket price? I'm just yeah. thinking about that now. thousand dollars. Yeah, I mean they were saying that it was ridiculous. I do wonder if that live gate also includes some of the um, uh, closed circuit uh, showings. So it's possible that 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 live gate includes closed circuit, and but it doesn't include the tickets sold for that arena. Does that make sense? There were closed circuit locations. In Las Vegas, Vegas yeah, in yeah, Nevada, yeah. Sure. You you know, it was for twenty bucks you got in, and yeah. both of them were averaging about four thousand dollars. It looks like the the Mayweather Pacquiao averaged about four thousand eighty bucks, and the other one averaged like four thousand two hundred bucks. So you know, it, same so range. Push it up incrementally. Yeah, but uh, interesting example to me though. I do think that speaks a little bit to the hype might have been greater in the minds of people than in the actual execution that this was not an event that blew away the previous record. In fact, we don't even know if it broke the domestic record itself. The last year we think there was maybe what 4.6 million North American buys for Mayweather Pacquiao and five and a half million buys worldwide and worldwide. Maybe it did beat it at, you know, six and a half million buys, but that six and a half million is not all at that one hundred dollar price point. It was much cheaper overseas, and in fact, what do we believe the U.S. How, how many U.S. buys for McGregor? You know, according to the Showtime executive talking to the L.A. Times, he said the mid to high four million mm-hmm. buys, and it does make you wonder: does that include all the double buys? You know, all these different people who are trying to get refunds right now, who say, you know, I bought it here and I bought it there. Um, what number of those are. And normally you'd be like, well, that's not going to be a huge percentage. But, you know, when you're dealing with 4 million buys and you're talking about 5%, right? That's still 200,000. And, and what you're talking about is there, there were a lot of problems with the pay-per-view servers, I guess, because so many people were trying to order all at once. Presumably, yeah, that there was something about just the technology uh, was not able to keep up with it. But I'm just saying like 5% of that, those people being 200,000, there's a possibility that 5% of people did have a problem. Now, 
you know, maybe maybe it, it, it is getting knocked out. Maybe it isn't. And obviously millions and millions and millions of people watched it illegally um, or for free. You know, on Mexican TV, Jack Evans was was talking about how he was able to watch it for free. So, uh, you know, 100 bucks in North America, 30 some bucks in, in Ireland, probably only 25 bucks in the UK. Pretty different what those last two million buys are going to do. But it, it's going to be a monster gate. And it, it raises the big question of does Conor McGregor – you know, insist on co-promotion next time he goes back to UFC. Does he fight scrubs in UFC so he can just finish out his contract as quickly as he can and renegotiate? Are we going to see, you know, Cyborg getting her boxing license so she can go stick it to UFC or other people like that? So it'll be intriguing to see if we see more of these people trying to play this boxing card to kind of get themselves weaseled around uh, a UFC or even a Bellator deal. Yeah, I don't think McGregor is going to box again, right? Like, for, I don't think there's... Going to be a match between Mayweather and McGregor. Maybe not the between match, them, but the match that they had showed that uh, Mayweather was really superior to him as a boxer. But but and there's I the think, the, the trainer, McGregor, the guy, the guy McGregor think, was training with that they were talking about doing a boxing oh, yeah. between those two. Maybe, maybe they can hype that up. And but I guess my, my my thought was that McGregor fought arguably the, the greatest boxer of 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 the era, and he lost. And so I, I don't see him. I don't know. I think if he gets in there with another boxer, that it could be somebody that also takes him apart. So what does he really have to gain from uh, from boxing again? It it will matter whether or not they put the money where their mouth is, right? Like, like is there another boxing star even close to the uh, the, the star power of, of Mayweather? Could, how actually compete? How many times did people say, you know, Tyson beats all these guys in a minute? Who wants to watch that? And he still did better and better buys. And then how many times has but there... Tyson was winning and Tyson was a star? I don't expect McGregor to be very successful at boxing. Oh, but I mean, Muhammad Ali fought and during his waning years was was losing, but still was a big star. And there's examples where he was able to draw yeah. and not. And the one and what I was going to say to that is the, the, the counter to that, too, is that, you know, you have some UFC guys that are incredibly dominant athletes and they don't draw. And so charisma and star power. Like Demetrius Johnson, who's uh, actually fighting this weekend. Exactly. And so it's like you have guys that have are incredibly charismatic and they draw and you have guys that are incredibly talented and they don't. And so McGregor is in the former category. And so if there's money to be made and a willingness to make it, you know, you can get somewhere much like, you know, it, it comes down to willingness. And that's the thing that you can never really judge is that there's some people that can live in the spotlight and some people that don't, that can't. And there's some people that, um, you know, they kind of a shun it, you know, like we say with the Diaz brothers right now, it, it seems like they may not be actively seeking more opportunities, even though they're strong, charismatic personalities. They've probably made their money in there. You know, they got enough money to be set for life. So why get beat up more? Yeah. And it's like, you know, McGregor seems not to be of that ilk, right? He seems to be a little bit more willing to get in there and, and rustle around uh, if, if the opportunity is there. Um, and, and I think he's, he enjoys the spotlight. He enjoys he enjoys all, all the, you know, all the promos and he enjoys, you know, all, all the cameras and the microphones and all that. I would be really curious if at some point UFC would actually offer him an ownership share as a way to get him back, you know, kind of fighting again, though, as most people said, probably co-promotion is much more likely. But, uh, you know, if if you're trying to figure out a way to keep a guy, get some skin in the game, uh, you know, you, you look back and you think about it and say, you know, could WWE have done better if they had, you know, given ownership to Austin or Rock or someone else at some point there as a way. And historically, some wrestling companies, that was, you know, one of the measures 
one of the ways that you could trade, you know, that people did actually trade the wrestling stock to to the wrestlers or to the top guys as a way of kind of um, maintaining them and, and having them be invested in the, the equity of the company. How would that in a so. modern wrestling, let's say a modern WWE, how would that benefit WWE to give a, a major star stock in the company or co-promotion rights of some sort? Uh, in wrestling, I, I could see it as, you know, essentially it ties them to you for the purposes of, of much in the same way executive compensation is often tied to stock price. You know, the idea being if this company succeeds, you succeed. So, yeah. uh, you know, if, if Brock Lesnar was a, you know, a, a major held a certain portion of the stock and, you know, we we're saying, hey, we're being able to build certain things around you. Maybe it would have a greater value. Again, when you're when you're not dealing with an industry that necessarily has competitors that are trying to steal you away the same way, it might be a little bit different. You could argue McGregor does have kind of this steal away ability now because it's clear he could be doing more with boxing or even whatever else he comes up with. You know, maybe he will go to Macau and fight a walrus for all I know. Let's talk. Um, let's talk about the Vice article. Um, that came out. Uh, speaking of competition with WWE, uh, Ian Williams uh, wrote for what was it called the the Bruise Day article instead of like Newsday Bruise I think it was he called it. It is, it is his uh, weekly column on pro wrestling. Yeah, and so uh, he uh, gave me a call, someone I had talked to before, and uh, just said, you know, I really want to talk about New Japan, and he was kind of honest. And what he said to me is, I got somebody else. Uh, a friend of his, I think it was Aaron Taub, who uh, also does a podcast on the uh, Voices of Wrestling Network, fine podcasting network. Uh, Everything evolves. And he was like, you know, basically, I'm being sold that New Japan is number two and they're, you know, that WWE is going to get weak. And what is your take on it? And I I just said, uh, I think it's way overstated you know, just in terms of comparisons between the two companies, because like we said on our show with Evan and I had the luxury of talking to Ian right after I had talked to you and Evan. So I was able to recycle a lot of our talking points, which was, you know, WWE is a $700 million company. New Japan is a $35 million company. A 20x difference in revenue is a pretty large thing. And uh, New Japan right now leverages Ring of Honor and so Ring of Honor is kind of, in my mind, uh, using New Japan's abilities to kind of prop itself up in a lot of ways where if you were to ask people, who are your five favorite people in New Japan? Uh, I'm sorry, in Ring of Honor, I wouldn't be surprised if some of those names were really New Japan talent that just comes over for Ring of Honor shows. Um, yeah. And I was just and I think what and I think what Ring of Honor gets from from New Japan is it gets the drawing power when they book the New Japan guys because those New Japan Slash Ring of Honor shows in the U.S. or Toronto uh, do better than than the shows without the New Japan talent, and, and it's almost like the sneaky thing on on New Japan's part is that they by doing that they get sort of a low risk advertisement. You know, they're sort of infiltrating this uh, U.S. company uh, in in advance of this strategy where they're going to start running shows in the U.S., which they've already run a couple in uh, in the L.A. area, it, which is true. And, but but at the same time, it's so and, tough and to say that it's. And, and, and and the New Japan talent is booked more often than not to go over on, on, on the Ring of Honor talent. So it looks to those fans who are seeing it that, what, hey, these New Japan guys are the bigger stars. Sure, sure. I agree with that. I think the challenge is, does that exposure – is it the right audience and is it a big enough audience to make a difference? 
you know, like to me, this triple mania Twitch, 72,000 is really exciting for Twitch. It's also irrelevant, right? 72,000 people go to a football game every weekend. And it's not like we're sitting there talking about this random college sports team that's able to draw 72,000 people. Yeah, so, but I, but I think it matters because there there is a certain audience that sees that, that sees New Japan work with Ring of Honor and sees New Japan talent go over usually on Ring of Honor talent. And even though it's not the wider pro wrestling audience that's seeing it, it's, it's still the, the wrestling fans who are seeing it who are going to going to be the ones to bring their friend next time or, or when somebody asks about what's this New Japan or Ring of Honor thing. You know, they're, they're going to ask their friends yeah. who maybe know. No, and, and, you know, Meltzer said that at the PWG event he was just at, he had dozens of people that talked about going to Wrestle Kingdom. Yeah. And that was really interesting to see, okay, you've got people that are now actually trying to do wrestling tourism in Japan again in a big way. Um, and so, you know, th- there's something to be said there. What my point to Ian was, was basically WWE is not weak right now the way that they could be in 2019. If their TV rights don't go well and they have to do lots of cost cutting, there's a possibility they could get weaker. But what we see right now with WWE is that they're willing to spend almost foolishly on talent, right? They're willing to stock up NXT with guys that they don't even use, like the UK guys, just to basically cut the legs off another person from being able to leverage that 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 angle. And so right now, WWE has shown that they're willing, able, and capable of just essentially spending on talent just to stop something else from happening, not necessarily to capitalize on it. And I think there are opportunities like we talk about in Mexico or something like I do think that they're underplaying the Mexican market and there's a big opportunity there. And I think when we talk about uh, the May Young Classic, uh, we'll talk about the India market and what we're seeing as a result there. But they if they got themselves in a situation where they either lost a major legal battle, you know, if they lost the independent contractor status of their talent or if they uh, were to lose a big legal concession on royalties or concussions, which, again, I do not think they will, but if they did, or if they were sold to a media conglomerate or sold a a large percentage to a media conglomerate in such a way that they had to essentially be influenced heavily by them, I could see those would be the sort of things that would stop WWE from basically working the way it does now, which is Paul Levesque wants to do this, William Regal wants to do this, and it kind of seems like it's being done. And I think the only other thing that could – and it kind of relates to uh, the point you're making about a, a poor TV rights renewal. The only other thing that I think could really change the landscape and make WWE fall into a place where it could be competed with by somebody like New Japan is if there's some sort of advent to media that really disrupts the pro wrestling industry and, and allows promotions like New Japan or Ring of Honor or whoever to reach as large of a market as WWE is able to, to, to reach. Sure, sure. If, if they had – you know a ubiquitous resource, the Netflix of, of um, wrestling or something like that, or the Amazon of wrestling in such a way. And, you know, of course, or if new Japan or someone were able to get on a, a really good network, like a spike or something. Yeah. And even that, I, I feel like, you know, we're kind of getting to the, the, the doldrums where I think it works really well for WWE because they have this built in audience that understands and knows them. But I'm not even convinced that the next generation of, professional wrestling company to ascend is going to necessarily do it through a television contract in a traditional mean you know it just feels to me like like it's easy to retain your audience when you have 30 years of history with them and you've been training them for 25 years what to do but it's tougher to kind of break in in today's uh dwindling eyeball unless it's a bellator type situation where you have such a large media conglomerate behind you 
that they're essentially willing to uh, use you as a loss leader for some reason. I think that's one of the really understated or you know underrated factors of the wrestling business. One of the things that really affects it is is just longevity, just like your brand longevity. This, this is something I'm, I'm I think I'm being informed by when I look at things like Google Trends and maybe other metrics too. Is that you know, something like TNA is still does really well in terms of searches, even though it's it's fallen so far. Uh, and like say in terms of actual TV viewership. Um, it has fallen, but it's it's still above things like Ring of Honor and probably New Japan, um, and and you see this in in Google Trends for wrestlers too. Just just guys who are around for a really long time do better than guys who aren't around for a really long time yet, but they may be pushed more and they may be hotter. Kane, than these other right? Guys. Remember it was exactly. the merch, a perfect example. the merch yeah. numbers that you had. You were saying how Kane was you know abnormally strong. Uh, and the only kind of feasible explanation is that he just he he has literally done more television matches than almost any other modern wrestler, um, and then it's or Big Show even like they're just right. there's something about it that keeps them. And even someone like Great Khali, you know, you you look at those trends and you see that he stays in that consciousness despite the fact that he's not really wrestling anymore. I think you even see that in, in, in our smaller world and that things like the Observer or the Torch, these are just things that have been around for so long that they just become the default go-to when people think pro wrestling news or something like that. Not not Satin's Sheet? Not yet. Well, the website hasn't been updated in, in a bit, I think. So uh, t- tell me a little bit about these Joe Coff interviews that um, you were transcribing. Yeah, so Joe Coff did at least a couple interviews in the last week or two. He did one for uh, this looks like a, something called For the Win, which is related to, to USA Today. Uh, and he, he he said some things. He talked about the uh, the relationship with New Japan and kind of talked about how uh, you know Ring of Honor defends their belts in New Japan. And he said, and I would expect that they would defend their belts over here. And yada yada, we have a terrific relationship with New Japan. It's symbiotic. Uh, we wrestle the same style. We book in the same way, which I would question. Um, but it's it sounded like. Maybe I'm I'm reading into this, but it sounds like he's saying we defend our belts in New Japan, but New Japan doesn't defend their belts uh, in Ring of Honor very much. Which I, I, there could be some research done into this to see exactly how many title defensives of, of each uh, you know, promotion have been done in the opposite promotion. And and again, this also gets into the idea that in Japan, the idea of a title defense is still has Rare. yeah, it still has some cachet to it, right? Whereas you, you don't run you don't run a t- New Japan and no. Japanese promotion that I know of runs a title match on every show like a WWE does on every house show. Exactly. And even a Ring of Honor, they run a lot of title matches, right? <laughs> like, And it, Ring of Honor's history with Japan has almost always been a little bit of them, in my opinion, like kind of begging for attention from the Japanese marketplace and anything from going over there to actually run their own shows to kind of hoping that they can get guys to kind of slip in and be on it and it, it's always tough when you're a company and then you have wrestlers that are part of your company because i would say a lot of these wrestlers don't necessarily have their interests aligned with the company itself right that a lot of guys like an elgin or something can lose faith or lose confidence in the company and still find that there's maybe a, a larger market for them out there uh and their talents than without without that ring of honor being attached to him and you know he's made quite a career for himself in, in new japan since then uh, so this other interview he did with uh, FanBuzz.com, uh, he said things like he really wants Cody Rhodes to sign with them, and that he, that he hasn't signed with them yet, and Cody's still taking bookings with other promotions, and Joe Coff wants him to 
be exclusive to Ring of Honor. And he made a, a point to talk about how you know Cody's made that tweet out how he wants to book a 10,000 seat arena and sell it out. And Joe Koff said that if he wants to do do that and sell out 10,000 seats, he's going to have to do it here in Ring of Honor. And so that I, I, I think I think New Japan if has got a better shot of doing a 10,000 seat building uh, than than Ring of Honor does. So I think there's another option, at least one other option for Cody Rhodes, where he could even do it with the Young Bucks like he said he wants to do. I think Ring of Honor could get away with it if they did the Super Show, where you know you had Daniel Bryan or oh. or someone. Well, that is that is on the horizon. That's good. That that's about the only thing that comes to mind to me is that if you had Punk or you had Daniel Bryan, or you you know literally ran it in Mexico. You know if you did, <laughs> you know you, you were able to promote some other match that really wasn't the match that you know a U.S. talent based match. Um, you know, go get L.A. Park to lose his mask or something, you know, maybe there's something there. But I, I don't think um, I agree with you. I don't think they're talent based. There's anyone or anything that they could offer short of bringing in a special attraction of a punk, a Danielson, a <sighs> or a, a really top New Japan guy who's doing something really special or, or somebody un, unforeseen leaving WWE who's a big star who could you know, really help them. Yeah. Like an Owens or Zane or, um, and, and again, if we're talking one show, I, I, I never rule out someone drawing 10,000 one show because, you know, if, if any W, uh, Northeast wrestling can draw, you know, 4,000 once a year on, and using, you know, half a dozen people. And it, to me, it seems like if you get the right guy at the right time, you can certainly make it big. I, respect Cody Rhodes for being successful at what he does. I am shocked at how successful he's been at selling his merch, specifically, you know, that hot topic merch. I couldn't believe there was like, you know, American Nightmare, Cody Rhodes, Bullet Club shirts and that supposedly they're up there selling. Have you, have you gone to a hot I did go to I did go to the did hot you? topic. Yeah, I, th- I thought I talked about it on one of the shows that uh maybe, maybe both me Rich both me and Rich Koresh uh have gone to hot topics in our 30s now. Uh, for the express purpose of just looking at Bullet Club gear. Though I will say there was a whole bunch of Rick and Morty stuff there, which got me really excited because I'm a big Rick and Morty mark. So, but uh, yeah, I I don't know if I was ROH, if I would sign a um, exclusive Cody Rhodes deal. I guess I can understand it from the standpoint of saying, you know, it does seem strange when he can be on Ring of Honor, New Japan's and, and GW. GFW's biggest show of the year and I and WWE I think all within you know 18 months or 12 months or whatever it ended up being but honestly I don't think you know paying him extra to tie him down is really in their best interest personally but I mean he, he's another, a champ so yeah and so an- another thing he said in this uh, interview is he, they talked about the uh, the show that Ring of Honor ran Supercard of Honor show on April 1st of this year which is on Wrestlemania weekend they ran in Lakeland, uh, Florida, which I believe is about a 90-minute drive from Orlando-ish. And uh, he said that the attendance was, quote, nearly 3,000, which is opposite of things we've, we read in The Observer. Like The Observer said it was 35,000. But then in an earlier interview in April, Joe Koff said, told the Baltimore Sun that it was 36,000. I'm sorry, 33,600. Um, Hot dog sellers, man. Yeah. So it, – it, on one hand, we're talking about the difference of five or six hundred. Yeah, it's it, said nearly three thousand, so it's a little. Less it, it's twenty percent of the number, but I would also say it's in that margin of error where you know whenever you go to a WWE show and someone estimates the attendance, 
I always figure that they're off by a good thousand because nobody's really that good unless that's their professional job. Right. But it was interesting to me that the CEO of the company uh, publicly, you know, went on record with a lower attendance than was uh, reported in the Observer. But thinking about it, maybe Jokoff just either forgot what the real number was or he forgot to exaggerate or whatever. Yeah, or or you know, just like when I'm quoting numbers, it, it, you 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 add different levels of specificity, right? So sometimes sometimes you say thirty thousand instead of three thousand, or or sometimes you say three thousand, sometimes instead of saying three thousand four hundred, you know, you rounded it again. A good promoter shouldn't do that. Like Vince McMahon always joked, uh, the one the one conference call where uh, Barrio said something, and George and uh, Vince goes, "I would have said half a billion." So social media, yeah. So, uh, but you know, it, it's it's probably a small thing. I I was laughing when I was quoted in that Vice article because I just had an off the cuff conversation with Ian on the phone. Is a, is a, okay, is a phone call. Yeah, and I didn't, you know, I literally was spitballing off the top of my head as I talked to him, and then I later saw my quotes in writing. And there's a big difference between what you say on a podcast and then when you transcribe it. It never comes across quite as eloquent and interesting as you think it's going to be. So I was cringing when I was reading my own quotes because I was like, well, that's not how I'd put it if you asked me that question by email. But, you know, it's, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, Jokoff said that uh, they have a relationship with, with WWE and that they seem to like what we do here. Uh, I think he's, he's talking about this in the context of, of Adam Cole and – you get. I've read interviews with Joe Coff like this before, and you get the impression that like it's it's kind of a realistic uh, idea of themselves that they have, and that they they know that they're never going to, or at least you know, almost never going to be at the level of WWE or not anytime soon. Uh, I, I guess it's the best public face they can put on it when they've got you know people like Adam Cole going to WWE. They just sort of turn it around to say you know. I think that's kind of how their show opens, right? They open with this cavalcade of, of clips of people who are basically now in WWE, like Brian Danielson, CM Punk, Kevin Owens, etc. Uh, they, they certainly have a know, claim. Look, 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 they started here. They certainly have a claim that they can still probably outdraw NXT in most cities if they don't have the luxury of a bookended pay-per-view with them. It, I think it's a competition still. That's a good question. I think we, we could – research that and putting together that attendance uh, spreadsheet. So maybe I mean, obviously things like Brooklyn are going to blow them away or any other, you know, and yeah, that's, and that's part of it is that you're not really judging like to like, right? Because NXT is intentionally running these big events in conjunction with other things. So I don't think it's even fair to compare the two, but if we were to oh, say course, yeah. sh- house show to house show, well, NXT runs a lot of tiny house shows in Lakeland, Florida, and they don't draw 3,000 people. They run a lot of professional house shows in the Midwest and other places. And, they often don't draw more than 2,000 people. Or, but, but would it be fair to compare a Supercard of Honor on WrestleMania weekend to the NXT TakeOver on WrestleMania weekend? Yes or no. I don't know. <laughs> Hard to say. I mean, I think it's interesting to say let's compare what Hopkins, Minnesota can draw and what NXT yeah. drew when it came to St. Paul, no, Minnesota. The... Like uh, both times. Yeah. I, I think you know NXT might have barely beat them, but it was actually probably a strong competition between the two in terms of what the uh, the attendances were. Yeah. So there, there's that. I I think you know when they Joe said you know Impact needs to figure out who they are. I don't envy them at all. I think that's true. <laughs> <laughs> and then 
He said a bunch of nice things after that to soften it. But that what was, was this unintentional comedy line you noted? Joe Coff said, I don't think there are a lot of companies that understand our brand, the way we portray our brand and the way we position our brand the way we do, which uh, I, 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 I thought that uh, sort of lacked an awareness to how the Ring of Honor brand has changed, or at least it opened uh, opened himself up to this critique, that the, the Ring of Honor brand has really changed over the course of, of the promotion's history. And I think the, the, the brand's strength has weakened with hardcore fans. At the same time, the brand's strength uh, has strengthened with a wider audience, probably because they're on all these affiliates throughout the country via Sinclair. The, that Ring of Honor has, and, and how it's changed is that, for example, they do, they're not uh, doing something like, say, an Evolve is doing where they're they're looking for the talent. They're trying to figure out who the best talent uh, that's available for them are. I, it, it seems to me that they're kind of just letting the talent come to them or you know, talking to people who are already affiliated with Ring of Honor and getting recommendations. And then they're doing their Ring of Honor seminars where they're char- charging people a lot of money so they can even have a look. And there's talk that you know those Ring of Honor seminars are – you know kind of predetermined in that you know somebody who's gotten in with ring of honor already will tell their friend hey do this seminar because you know they've had a look at you and they really like you so if you do the seminar there's a good chance you'll get a shot and things like that. so is mr 489 done a roh seminar i have not have you ever been backstage in roh show i not backstage, no. I was going to say years ago when they came here to St. Paul and they uh, they ran a little armory. And after the show, I kind of hung around and I think I might have even helped help carry the ring or something. And I swear, like the people I was talking to at the time were like Cole <laughs> and um, Paige and, you know, just the the, the 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 ROH young boys of the day. Um, Adam Page. Yeah. So that, that was, you know, it's just funny now thinking back. Uh, you know, all these times I remember years and years and years ago, uh, Brody Lee, now Luke Harper, you know, his his claim to fame was he ran the spotlight on one of the ROH shows when they were in town, you know, so that's how they used the talent back then. So it's it, I but I agree. I think they have a little bit of a um, a depth issue in terms of the the exclusivity on guys is low. So, you know, it's like some of the thing, the acts that I used to think were really kind of cool, like War Machine, you know, they're they're elsewhere. Um, and then also the novelty of exactly this talent isn't necessarily the highest because it's either talent that just seems to kind of be there forever, you know, kind of a Danielson or a, uh, a Jay Lethal or it's really, you know, new talent or it's New Japan, get some more training talent or just people that, you know, maybe there's no connection with that is, is drawing in that super fan in the same way. So, you know, it's interesting that the Young Bucks Hardy's feud was like one of the best things they had going for them for a while. And essentially, that's not in their wheelhouse anymore, their playbook. Yeah. And I, I would, I would, people who know Ring of Honor better than I do could tell me if, I'm, if they disagree. But the sense I get is once Gabe Sapolsky left that company, a real strong visionary – has been lacking ever since and at least in current ring of honor there isn't a great deal of long-term booking there doesn't seem to be a great deal of focus in, in terms of getting people over and ring of honor when i was growing up in ring of honor was just starting out you know the, the feeling was th- this was like this was like the super serve promotion you know this was let's take the best wrestlers that we can you know get to travel to our venue to, to, to be part of the show and try to put on the best wrestling show possible 
And and while Ring of Honor still uses that catchphrase that you know they're the best wrestling in the world or whatever, it's it's not the best wrestling in the world. It's good. There, there's a lot of good matches, I'm sure, in, on Ring of Honor shows, but you don't get the feeling that there's a lot of buzz around that promotion. You don't get the feeling that people are talking about, oh my god, you see that match? Did you see that that guy, that star? There's less of that. There's they have the Young Bucks, and they're a super hot act, maybe as hot an act in the U.S. as there as there is uh, outside of WWE. And Co- and Cody's, you know turning into a hot or has turned into a hot act as well uh but it doesn't have the feel of oh my god you gotta go see brian danielson uh and then loki and and it makes me sad that you know i feel this way but there are guys there like the briscoes that you almost feel like wow i kind of wish i got to see you doing this promotion or this promotion as opposed to just ring of honor where like you know as the redneck wrecking crew or whatever the the rumored thing for for wwe would have been because there's something about Ring of Honor that's insufficient in terms of providing these guys a place to really show what they can do, to not not quite to the extent that I feel that that is the case in WWE, but to some extent to to complete the picture, let's say, like I think the Briscoes have an incredible history with you know some of their ladder stuff, ladder matches, and just their entire history being so connected with Ring of Honor, going back to you know literally the very beginning. But at the same time, since they were yeah, since uh, children. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and it, that because Mark Mark was what seventeen or sixteen. That's exciting. That's awesome. But at the same time, there's always that kind of feel that like you do want to see Nakamura in WWE, even if you know it's not as good as what maybe he would be doing in New Japan. The novelty of a Nakamura John Cena is really interesting, and kind of being denied that novelty of just all the talent that WWE has, or some of the other promotions have and just not seeing you know them mix up with someone like the briscoes it kind of feels like you know that whole career is going to go by and it's never going to happen yeah that's the way i feel about a lot of we talent hey brandon have you heard about this lucha underground statement on blocking wrestlers from working elsewhere i have there was a uh a, an article by uh the pw insider by mike johnson uh, earlier this week where it sounds like there, there's some rumors stories going around about how uh Maybe some Lucha Underground contracted talent are trying to get bookings, you know, outside of Lucha Underground because Lucha Underground hasn't uh, had a taping since I think it's spring 2016. So naturally, the wrestlers are trying to get work uh, in the meantime, at least. Uh, and there's some stories about um, someone uh, claiming to be affiliated with MGM is uh, calling the the promoters who are trying to book the Lucha Underground talent and telling them that you know. I don't, I don't know about giving them legal threats, but at least telling them that uh, they, they may be in some trouble if they actually book that talent. Um. Yeah, and it gets it gets confusing here because you have Lucha Underground, which was affiliated with AAA, but then you have guys that were working for them who kind of lost their connection with AAA, like Pentagon and Phoenix. And, you know, they're doing a lot of PWG and other shows now. And then you have guys that are even showing up on GFW, like Morrison and and Phantasma and Drago, Johnny Impact, and uh, yeah, Johnny Impact, and and just like you know the the fact too when that they did the contracts originally, the Lucha Underground contracts were written like television contracts, and so people were saying that's so different than what a wrestler's contract is like that the exclusivity things were all about it has to do with the air date of the program and then the exclusiveness around that and so allegedly someone like ricochet is you know just kind of waiting it out right now supposedly uh that he's 
counting the days for basically Lucha Underground to finally air the last episode because then he becomes a free agent something like 90 days after that. Right. It looks like his contract, he told uh, Sports Illustrated a few months ago that his contract expires in September, which is this month, and then he would be free after a 90-day no-compete. So it, uh, Meltzer thinks he's going to WWE. It's time for him to go to WWE, he says. And uh, I mean, uh, if you think 90 days from maybe, let's say, late September, to be sure, uh, that could make him available in time for the uh, Royal Rumble weekend NXT TakeOver, maybe. Just just a thought. Yeah, or even, you know, hey, you never know with WWE if they're going to go just hotshot some guys so they, they're in the Rumble uh, yeah, out of the well, blue and just get everyone excited. I did it with you know, I... I yeah, I think AJ is a little bit more high profile than Ricochet yeah. in terms of age, maturity, uh, and probably the way he's perceived in the industry. You know, I, th- I think a lot of people in WWE knew who AJ was and were familiar with him uh, coming in versus, you know, someone like Ricochet is pretty young. So many people like agents like uh, Brian James, Road Dog uh, had, had worked with him in, in TNA and things like that. Well, and AJ was around WWE 15 years prior to that, you know, during the death of WCW and whatnot. And so they know him from that. And of course, they had put a bid to him years earlier when he was getting done with TNA and they lowballed him and he went to New Japan. And I think, you know, his run in New Japan really revitalized his standing with the company versus someone like Ricochet. And and this was something Meltzer was saying was one of the reasons why New Japan might be a little um, box him in is because they have such a strong uh, delineation between what is a junior and what is a uh, heavyweight. And, you know, there's kind of a, a limit sometimes for you in New Japan if they decide to put you in one box versus the other. Yeah, although they took Kenny Omega out of being a junior, and now he's, you know, one of the two or three top heavyweights they've got. Exactly. So, you know, that's the sort of thing, though, I think you have to kind of push yourself to get out of. And yeah. it, it, it doesn't always seem like New Japan is and, proactively. And do- they're moving up to, to be a heavyweight after being a junior in tags. Wow. You know that? <laughs> I, I I don't even know if Trent knew that. Oh yeah, that's why uh, Rocky Romero is. Um, I think they they announced that during in, during the G one. I think the last night of the G one. You know that that uh, Rapongi Vice is uh, all done as a tag team, and Trent's moving to uh, to heavyweight. I kind of like the idea that it's like if if you eat enough junk food during the entire off season that you come back and and New Japan is forced to fo- push you up one weight category. Yeah, put on that weight. <laughs> um, but, but the story here about Lucha Underground, uh, the. Uh, Ultimately, the, the what uh, PW Insider did was they they contacted Lucha Underground and uh, he got a response uh, from them saying that uh, it basically making it sound like it's not them who's who's contacting the promoters and telling them don't book Lucha Underground talents and that the, the one quote uh, from the article is that MGM would never improper this is from uh, Lucha Underground itself or MGM uh, MGM would never improperly block a cast member. This is you know, Lucha Underground wrestler who is honoring his or her obligations to Lucha Underground from earning uh, that type of income that is, that is a, a booking during a long production hiatus. So true, but but I, I to me that still reads very much like uh, we we, we at never impact, do anything un- improper or or like we at Impact would never claim ownership of a gimmick that we ourselves do not own. And it's like, well, in your mind, you do. So, of course, you think it's fair for you to say that. But does that really mean you're on the right side of of everything? No. But uh, it, it's possible that they're being caught on what they're doing. It's possible that, yeah. I mean, I don't really think promoters are trying to use Lucha Underground Boogeyman. I could see 
other kind of confusion going on because again i think this hybrid between television and professional wrestling it it this is a little bit of a cautionary tale about what happens when you just try to book wrestlers if they're television actors and when originally when lucha underground was going to debut the story was they've signed a lot of people to seven seven season contracts right i think if 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 the seasons got renewed they could be continuing to pay them using the original contract uh, supposedly but in some cases there might have been some out clauses and in some cases i think there's also just kind of um it, it's very possible in entertainment law that there's other loopholes that people just know about or understand because you know there's lots of stories of you know actors on television shows that still seem to be able to get raises though you'd think they would be locked down forever so uh, it was. It's an interesting little thing. I think uh, Ricochet is clearly not pleased with them when he calls them things like a certain underground fighting company or being pricks. <laughs> you know, I think that's pretty on the ball this, in terms of how they're. That he said when he, he grabbed the microphone, he didn't wrestle on the New Japan Long Beach shows, and it seemed like he didn't wrestle because maybe Lucha Underground didn't let him wrestle. So he he came in the ring on the second night, and uh, and again he wasn't wrestling on either show, but he got in the ring and, and took the microphone and said, you know, a certain underground fighting company are being pricks right now. So it sounded like Lucha Underground didn't let him wrestle, although he wanted to. And, you know, to protect their investment, I can understand why they made that decision, especially with a show that was emanating from America. Um, I agree, you know, it's not in the wrestler's best interest, but in a self-serving company's best interest, uh, especially one that seems so indifferent about timing and money making and, you know, elevation that I'm not surprised. I mean, I think that we would never improperly block someone who is honoring his or her obligations. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mentioned raw airing live on Christmas and New Year's day. Uh, they, they called it the first ever raw live on Christmas. And of course they've taped in the past. Uh, WWF has worked Christmas before I found, you know, night 85, they did it in, in Miami and Landover, Maryland and 86. They did it in Detroit and Landover, Maryland. Don't know why Landover, Maryland gets so much love, but it did. Maybe it was a good hub city for them to uh, fly out of or something. Uh, and of course, you know, uh, Jim Crockett and WCW and, and world-class, Lots of places have great histories of doing Christmas Day wrestling. And, of course, if you live in certain parts of the country, if you have a booking on the day after Christmas, you're probably leaving on Christmas e- uh, Christmas night to get to that booking on time. So it's not like guys don't ever have to fly out. But in this case, you know, obviously they, they might even be flying out Christmas Eve. Um, usually the guys have it off. And then Christmas to New Year's is usually one of the best houses for wwe all year round i mean when you and i do our kind of breakdowns of attendance one of the things that you kind of have to control for is the difference between the end of december and the beginning of december because it's such a different trend line yeah the, uh, the, for the, and it's always been it, it they haven't really ran on christmas like you said um in recent times at least it's it's like december's 26th to december 31st where it's obviously the tickets are a lot of Christmas gifts and the, the attendances are just they're, – they're so much higher than they usually are that I have to just eliminate them completely because they don't uh, – they're just totally out of the norm. And, and you know, as someone said, the, the person I feel bad for is the hot dog vendor or the, you know, the, the camera guy or those people who, you know, it's harder to give up that time. You know, there's a big difference between – <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, if you talk to the talent, most of the talent loves that post-Christmas tour. 
you know, like as much as they enjoy being with their family, they love a good tour that pays well. And so there's a big difference between leaving your house to go work MSG and, you know, leaving your house to go work Fargo, North Dakota. Do they love what's going to happen this year, though, in that they're going to be on the road on Christmas Day? And and that probably means what they have to leave Christmas Eve. Some of them. At least least this morning. it, It will depend on, you know, who's flying where. Right. So some people might be able to get to their location in time and some people can. So uh, I think it will depend a lot on that. And, you know, every everybody, some people are going to bring their family with them, you know, make it make it part of the trip yeah. for all, you know. So it, it it's good and bad. It's a decision. It sounds like USA is doing it. It at times it can seem like it's a battle. That's a strange one to fight of how can I get better ratings for Christmas Day? Um, and you know maybe the is going to be pretty crappy. You know, like, they, is, is, do they really need a, a, a new live show here? Because they've just put some best of show like they've done in years prior, and yeah. gotten a similar rating that they're going to get. Or, or is it something where it has to do more with the fact that uh, you know they want to dominate December in the USA Network, you know, on cable and end the year really strong, so that they can brag about it going into twenty eighteen. And make that a big thing to say, you know, we are the highest rated network on cable or something. And this is just part of their strategy to cement the number. Yeah. You, you don't again, know. I, I, like, I question whether it's going to be, you know, it's going to be the difference of, of a few percent, I think. It's between between throwing a best of show out there or a tape show out there and a live show, especially a tape show. A tape show is going to – I know there's people who talk about how well how live is starting to matter. I'm, I'm not really sure about that. You know, I – being taped way in advance maybe another story but being taped a couple days in advance i don't know yeah and it's a it's a good question mark and i think different people are going to have different views so if you're usa network and i say to you for the cost of x amount of hundreds of thousands of dollars i can deliver this thing to you and it's worth this many ratings points do you decide to go ahead with it and so if you're an executive in usa you might say sure because to you, it requires no effort. It's a budgeted line item. You're already paying them a fixed amount of money. And so you can just create it as an expectation. For, and for all we know, you know, maybe WWE gambled this away a long time ago in terms of what they promised USA Network, right? When they said, hey, we'll give you some more money for SmackDown. But one of the conditions is, is you have to provide us with 52 weeks of live programming with absolutely no tapes. You know, so we, we don't really know. But I just mean... The the sort of person who makes that decision isn't always the person who's directly affected by it. So it can be easier for a USA Network exec to authorize that spending, not having to actually care about who has to come in on Christmas Day to go work it. And I just thought it was so strange when I suddenly saw all these tweets and, and people being aghast about it. And I pointed to the fact that when the event schedule was published in the bootlegging lawsuit around WrestleMania – it said right on that schedule that they were going to be doing a live event in St. Louis on Christmas Day. And somebody told me that actually this Raw this year for Christmas is going to be in Chicago. So I don't even know if it's two events because, you know, they're sending people to two different places or what that means. But maybe one to of me, it was SmackDown House show and the other is a Raw TV taping. Yeah, that's what I was wondering, though. Somebody else also said maybe SmackDown wasn't starting till the next day is what they were being told. Uh, for the SmackDown Live event, but I don't know for a fact. But just to me, it was funny because a guy on Reddit had asked that the day I posted the schedule from Fightful. said, surely they're not going to be on Christmas Day. And at the time, I really thought, yeah, I bet they will do Christmas Day because it's it's a good 
house for them. I didn't think they would tape Raw. I really didn't think that would happen. I thought they would just do a house show because it was, you know, it's so much less cumbersome to do a house show because, you know, you don't have to show up quite as early. You don't have to, um, you know, worry as much about planning out a whole show and the guys can make a lot of money just showing up to do a show. So I I didn't think it was going to be a tape show, but I knew about this in April. And so it's just funny to me that in August and September, people are freaking out over it because I have to believe these guys should have figured this out by now. I don't believe they were told this in advance necessarily, but I think the really smart ones probably could have found that schedule and looked at it and done some math on their own head. Well, they get schedules in advance, right? Yeah, these people get their schedules in advance. Um, I think it's six to eight weeks in advance. And yeah, at times, you, know, you don't people, think they get them like months and months in advance? Then I don't know. I, I, you know, we hear about, you know, who they're advertising for different shows and when they announce different shows. And, you know, in terms of buying tickets and whatnot, I'm thinking, you know, they want to buy the tickets four to six weeks in advance. But I wouldn't be surprised if it's less than, you know, they only get eight weeks rolling or something like that at a time. Maybe they get, you know two tours or two, two, you know, two months or something. But I just feel like there's a lot of small moving parts, especially international tours. You kind of know when they are, but you kind of, there's always elements of it that are a little bit more out there. And then there's things like, you know, when they're going to run a spot show in China or whatever, you know, who exactly is going to be on that show sometimes might be a little bit more uh, in flux. Yeah. So I, I just thought it was funny that they made this announcement on Labor Day. And, uh, you know, you talk about, well, you know, this used to happen all the time, wrestling or, uh, Christmas Day used to be a big, big day for wrestling and in the 80s and 70s and whatnot. And at least at that time, being an independent contractor was more reflected what was really going on. And you could you at least had the choice, maybe if you wanted to stay home on, on Christmas Day, you could just not take a booking. And it's not really up to, to these people in WWE to stay home, is it? No, I'm you're an employee. You're an independently contracted employee. (laughs) Again, I feel the worst for the camera guys and the sound engineers and all these other people that, you know, are really going to have to be there early setting up and taking down. And, you know, that's a day away from their family. And those are not people that are getting paid more on the house the way a wrestler is. And and, and some people said to me, well, sure, yeah, this was – yeah, back in 86, Hogan and Savage worked three times on Christmas or something like that, which I mean, maybe, and if they did, that doesn't really, I don't think that makes it better. Um, you know, it was probably terrible for, for their family as well. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a good example of the sacrifices you make about wrestling. You know, uh, Lance Storm name dropped me on Twitter the other day uh-huh. where he's like, well, Mookie said yeah. that the top guys do a hundred, uh, 180 to 185 matches a year. And uh, I went looking, you know, at some old data, and, and that's really in the right right range usually of, of what it is. And if it's higher than that, then it's, you know, people that are doing scrub matches, you know, uh, two times on Raw because it, there's a no, you know, the match gets interrupted and then they get a, a tag match out of the, you know, two, those sort of things. So that's the only time you really see guys doing a lot more. But this is a good example of when they talk about, you know, it's more than just the number of matches you have. It's also about the travel time to and from every show where, you know, all the guys on SmackDown are still traveling on Wednesday, even though they're not wrestling on Wednesday because they don't get to go home until usually Wednesday morning. Yeah. So, you know, this is a great example of, you know, you're not only losing Christmas, but you're probably losing part of Christmas Eve. Yeah. And just so. in, in context, it's just another one of these things that feels like the, hey, this is your dream. It's it's like a tax because you, you want to do this and we'll sign people to NXT for, you know, 
barely enough money to live on because you got the potential to make an opportunity to make millions. Yeah, I, I will say doing consulting and, and, and misclassification and, to, and all that, you know. Yeah, I when I was in a consultant, I had to travel on holidays a lot and go places and be away from you know my family when I wanted to be lots of times. And so there's lots of other high paying jobs that also inconvenience you a lot in terms of your ability to you know just get away always when you want to. And, this, and so these, it's and not, these workers have no union to make an argument for them. They have no leverage. They they don't, but. I, I don't know if this is the worst way to make a living, you know, yeah. either. So it, it's 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 a challenge. I, I don't know if this is what I would consider the straw that breaks the camel's back. But I can certainly I'll be curious to hear if there's, you know, a backlash at some point where someone says, I really didn't see the point for Kurt Hawkins to fly all the way out there to sit and do a 30 second match on right. dark. Match, but there's going to be people at that TV taping which just aren't going to be used because that's the way it is at every TV taping. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, poor Grand Metal Leak. Right. Um, I promised on our last show that I would talk a little bit about Chris Jericho's book. Here we go. I received a, a press copy of the book. Um, it says right on the front, advanced reading copy, not for sale. And on the back, it's a it talks about uncorrected page proofs and says these pages have not been copy edited and might change before the book is printed. If any material is quoted in a review, it should be checked against the finished book. So I'm going to be very clear here. I did not go out and buy a second copy of this book and then cross-reference anything I say today. So if you want to not consider this review, then it is not an official review. Um, the original email to me from the publicist basically says, you know, Chris Jericho has a new book and we want, we're interested to find out if you're interested in help get the word out about it. So I'm considering this my getting the word out about this book. Uh, I was a big Chris Jericho fan when he was in WCW. I was a, a, I remember one time I went out and I bought a Christian magazine, um, at logos in Rochester, uh, that, like had an interview with Chris Jericho in it. And I like, I went and found this magazine just for the purpose of the fact that he was doing an interview in this magazine. And so, you know, I, I really enjoyed, um, his books, his first book, I should say, I really enjoyed that. And, uh, was always a big, you know, someone I really enjoyed uh, a lot like Mick Foley, where I really enjoyed his character. I really enjoyed him. I really enjoyed his first book. And I have found that repetition has made, uh, tedium and so uh the fact that jericho's now on his fourth book much like foley is on his fourth or fifth memoir plus all the other things he's written i do think there's a law of diminishing returns with a lot of this this book is pitched as a uh, self-help i mean on the back i'm not i'm not making this on myself it's it's pitched as a memoir slash self-help of 232 pages 16 pages of black and white photos which were neglected from my book i do not get those in my book um and uh, uh, it's being sold in hardcover uh, for $26 or $34 Canadian. So uh, you're, you, you're probably seeing Chris Jericho make the rounds right now on lots and lots of different media. He did everything from Wrestling Observer to uh, he did a good interview with somebody where he just talked about how often Shane McMahon punched him in the face during uh, the last time they wrestled and how, how he had to retaliate by giving him a giant drop kick to his face to basically tell him to calm down. Um, and, and so those kind of interviews are really fun and interesting. Uh, this book, unfortunately, uh, I do not find to be fun and interesting. 
uh, I find elements of this book to be, you know, sometimes intriguing. And then I find the rest of it to be either really boring, really self-serving, really um, irrelevant, or worst of all, really creepy and kind of off-putting. And so the idea that this is a self-help book to me is is the ultimate farce because all the the self-help is is a, a bunch of very open platitudes and then his kind of version of what he thinks that platitude could be related to a story of his life. But not a single one of these stories in my mind really seems to say, what would happen if I gave this advice to someone else and they put it into practice and then this is how it changed their life, which to me is a little bit what a self-help book should be, right? That you're giving advice that is so applicable to someone else that if you, you feed it to them, they're able to implement it and they're able to do something with it versus you know the very open-ended little platitudes like have a good time all the time, the Vic Savage principle or the Yoda principle, there is no try, only do, of which he actually says um, – he looks it up and he then finds out that the real quote is do or, or do or do not. There is no try. But he decides to keep his version of the quote instead as his his inspirational phrase. Um, just every one of these is like both a quote from someone and then a quote from a, a song. So these songs can be anything from a Spice Girl song to lots of metal things. I understand uh, Gene Simmons always dressed like a star. Yeah. And so you, you talked about. You know, Jericho blocking me on Twitter. And he actually has a section in there where he talks about how he decided to intentionally become the most annoying character on Raw before he did a turn. And that he was basically trolling, trying to get people to post things on Twitter like put on a shirt. I can't believe Jericho's doing this here. I can't believe Jericho's being so obnoxious and using these terrible catchphrases and, and trying to resurrect all his catchphrases. And from that standpoint, I think it worked in the sense that, yeah, I did find him really annoying at the time. And I do remember complaining about him on Twitter. And that's pretty much around the same time that he blocked me um, when someone retweeted something I had written about the ratings impact from him being so uninteresting on Raw. But at the same time, he contradicts himself so much in that chapter about like being a heel where he talks about like how important it is to like make a fan's day by like signing something. And then in the next breath, he says basically, but as a heel, I think it's even better to like kind of blow off the fan because then they'll really hate you when they see you because they'll think you're a real jerk. And it, it just seems like such a contradiction to be like, why do you want to be committed to your cause in the sense of like really not respecting people when then a later chapter is all about how he finally learned from Lal, Lars Ulrich that it's actually important to learn the names of the roadies and people around you and to be nice to them. And it's just like it's so bizarre to me that this book could only be applied to someone else who wants to go be Chris Jericho. I was going to say, not, is this, is this, does this book come off any better if you think of it as a rest, wrestling advice book for, for aspiring wrestlers or young wrestlers? Not really. No. I mean, nine, I mean, he, even some of the stories I'd say that was the wrong choice. And now it's more like as if I asked you to write a self-help book and I gave you 24 open ended platitudes. And then I said, think of a story that vaguely relates to any one of them. What's strange is I swear to you, I could tell you any one of these platitudes, tell you his story, and you would never be able to connect what story goes to which platitude. Or if you're a wrestler, some of the advice he gives is just bad advice. Like at one of them was basically like stand up for what you believe on. But it was all about how they drove all the way from like Calgary to Iowa for a show. And then the promoter didn't want to book half of them. So they all left. And I was just like, 
I, I get that you're trying to say that there's, you know, something about stand up for what you believe in. But at the same time, you also just kind of drove a long way for a show, didn't get booked on it. And then none of you got paid. And then you just all left. And I don't really know if that was good advice to someone. <laughs> so if it's just I, I forced myself through it. And the chapters about music are just so insatiably uh disgusting to read just how much you know how much he loves paul stanley's fine but then when you just basically see him praising the fact that you know he puked all over himself and hogan thought it was funny i don't know if that's really all that entertaining when you bring in delight you know like this the story he wrote about is like dui that he got before and things like that so it just i i did i found it made him less and less appealing the more i read of this book and that there was nothing in this book that i thought oh this is actual advice that someone can apply to their life versus here's a weird story about chris jericho trying to listen to yoko ono p at the rock and roll hall of fame which he snuck into like i'm sure that's a fun story to tell on a podcast because you can you know cheer it up but it, it actually comes across really creepy uncomfortable and kind of lame when you write it all down. Uh, so I did not find this book to be, uh, uh, a, a plus in my, uh, uh, category. And, uh, I, I can, I, I get that, you know, like the only fun part is like when he tells like a Negro Casa story, you know, things like that. Or like he talks about going to Vince and what he has this great big storyline for Vince McMahon and how he he's pitching everything. And and if if you're worried about spoilers, I'm going to spoil the book here because I'm going to give you an honest review. And like one part of it is where he's like, I'm pitching this great idea. But then Paul uh, Levesque is in the room and he, he feels like Paul's killing his his idea pitching. And Vince McMahon is hungry. So, of course, Vince is just being awful. And it's all about how like trip uh, how uh, Chris Jericho wanted uh, basically Shawn Michaels to come back and make a big save in the middle of his program. And that's what it would this program with Bray Wyatt would build to. And then he couldn't believe that Vince didn't want to do this. And uh, part of me is just like, I don't think you're as important in Shawn Michaels career as he is in yours. You know, it's it's one of those situations where I think he has a very hard time of seeing things from the viewpoint of anyone except for himself. And so he comes across so just icky because it's that complete inability to understand what would it be like if you were on the other side of this would you really waste a big Shawn michaels program on a chris jericho bray wyatt feud right he wanted Shawn michaels to be in his corner uh for for a feud with bray wyatt right and he... make a big save and and do a promo praising him and all this stuff and it it's just i get that in his mind this is a great idea and this is really cool but i also i get vince mcmahon who's like you know what I don't care. Find me a better idea. And maybe and his, his story is that Vince is eating a steak that's not good, and that's why he turned down the idea. Yeah, and, and that he just keeps going, bad cow. Yeah. And and to me, it's just like, you know what? There's something to be said about when you're pitching to an important person, make sure that they're not eating. That That's actually good advice in, in just normal life. But I think sometimes trying to put a Vince spin on things makes it seem like – you're creating a demagoguery around Vince. And what you see a lot with this is that it's Chris Jericho trying to search for that dad's approval with Vince a lot yeah. in, in the way he communicates. And so I just, you know, there's snippets in there of interesting things, but a lot of times it turns into, I did this for AJ Styles and I made him better. And that uh, all the marks on the internet are, are idiots because kicking out of the Styles clash actually made Vince then convinced that we could use the Styles clash as a move. And that's why it was great. And it's kind of this viewpoint that like everything has to be my way or it was a bad idea versus maybe there's many roads to Rome and that your one good idea is actually not as good of a great idea as you think it is. 
So it, it, it just come off as a swarmy book. And, and uh, if you're a big Chris Jericho fan, maybe there's something in there, but like a lot of things you have to kind of cl- skip all the Fozzie chapters unless you're a, a big a child of the seventies and it's going to mean something to you. There's a, a, a sense from Chris Jericho when I hear him in, in interviews that he's he's much more impressed with himself than I guess I am when I listen to him. And you have to be. To be a big star, you have to be really impressed with yourself. I think there's very few exceptions of people that have that you know incredible humility that they don't come across as someone who is just full of themselves. Because in a certain sense, you have to believe that you're so important that you know you're going to make it. And I get that. And I think that's one of the reasons a lot of guys don't have that killer instinct to get ahead. And also, I think that's a reason why a lot of people fail, because they think that they have the killer instinct at the very wrong part of their career or with the wrong skill set. Yeah. Um, Chris Jericho's book's called No is a Four-Letter Word, Word, How I Failed Spelling But I Succeeded in Life by Chris Jericho with a forward by Paul Stanley. And considering how heavily Paul Stanley then like later figures into the book, the forward is like the most hilarious sit down at a notepad and write like 10 words and call it a forward. Uh, you know, I, I really thought that it was possible that Paul Stanley had no idea who he was based on the way I read that forward. And then when you read the book, according to Chris Jericho, everyone is his best friend. You know, everyone. It, it, there's this huge section of the, the book, which is all about America's Funniest Home Videos. And how he was convinced he was going to get the next hosting job on it and how it ended up going to, you know, like Mario Lopez or uh, Carlton from uh, Fresh Prince or, or someone like that. And that he's like he feels like he's in like this epic life feud with these guys when in reality, that's the way Hollywood is. And that's the way, you know, that they bring in three people oftentimes so two of them can fail. And, you know, I think in his mind, he has a hard time believing that he was those two people that were brought in to fail just in the same way in wrestling. Sometimes they'll bring in several people so one of them can shine and the other ones are not really getting a tryout. They're just there to be there, you know. So it, it, it's just funny to me how sometimes someone can be so blind in one area and, you know, be very successful in another. Yeah. So I've been penting up that uh, that that 232 pages of of review that I, I just did off the top of my head here. I was going to write it and it just was like every time I sat down to think about these chapters, they just made me angry because they were so. <laughs> it'll make it'll make a nice blurb, though, for in the second second printing. Uh, what would you say? Insatiably disgusting. <laughs> Swarmy and whatnot. Yeah. So I, I I fear that I might have spoiled our ability to get many more uh, advanced copies of Chris Jericho books. But if there's one thing I've always been known for in my life, it's that I rarely hold my tongue when I should. So I am I'm more than happy to speak out and the truth. And I, I really don't want to come from a place of hate because I think it's a great accomplishment to write your own book and do it. I just can't wholeheartedly endorse this. Yeah, you mean. I, at least I want to listen to people who are honest. I don't. I don't need to hear people who are, you know, trying to sell me something. Um, yeah, and it doesn't have as much wrestling as you'd want. And it doesn't have as much not wrestling as you'd want. So it's it's there's a terror. You're gonna get me going again. There's a whole chapter about like uh, uh, how we got to meet Keith Richards, and the whole chapter is basically about how he convinced Vince McMahon that he could leave Raw to go meet Keith Richards and then come back to Raw. And like that's the, the 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 lesson of it is like called make it work. And I was like, I don't really feel like there was a good lesson there because I kind of feel like you did kind of abandon your job to go pursue a random interest of yours, not because it was the best thing to do for your job and your career, your time, but just because you thought it was a good lark that you could go on and that was meaningful to you. And like, 
I don't know. To me, that just seems like you were irresponsible and you got away with it. Go you. And if you get to meet Keith Richards, you should do it is basically his thing. So that's their self-help lesson there. I've spoiled chapter four. Anyways, um, tell me about uh, Kavita. You'd like us to, to review other books. Yes, email us at WrestleNomics at gmail.com. I have I have other wrestling books. I just don't feel like their publicist has asked me to read it. So I feel like if I get a personal plea from someone, I will read a book if I feel like there's a connection to them. I But I just – I'm not going to go and, and go read books just to read books. Like Todd Martin, yeah. actually, he's read so many books and he always has like his tiers of what are the best books. And he, I feel he, like he this was on the third tier. Oh, uh, is that – and the first one, I think the first one is the best and the fifth is. The yeah, yeah. He has very few on the first. He has lots in the second. It's certainly third is the very highest I could ever give this. I would I would argue it should even be below that. Um, but yeah, I also would feel like maybe Todd was able to just kind of skip a lot of those music chapters that are irrelevant. Uh, as a re- as wrestling stories go, I think it's it's has enough wrestling material in it for about 100 pages. So if 100 pages of wrestling material interests you, it's there. How many pages was this again? 232. How, how long did it yeah. take you to read it? Um, I read it probably in four days, maybe five days. I would read about 50 pages a day because oh. uh, it, it's big print and the stories are not, you know, uh, they're not very. I, I did have to look up, I think, one word. Uh, it was a word that Jonathan Swift used to use um, about very large people. Uh, what was this word? Brogdo, Brogomium or something? Uh, Swift, Brog. <laughs> Don't. He used one really like interesting word. And then, uh, yeah, Brogdonian. Uh, it, it's a very ancient word, just basically meaning enormous, gigantic. Um, but that was about the only word in there that like made me think, oh, what an interesting choice of a word. Everything else about it just comes across like it's a podcast story that you're writing down on paper. And, you know, that that's what he said his style has been in the past, that he tells his story to a ghostwriter and the ghostwriter kind of transcribes it. So then he claims he wrote the book because he told those stories and all this person is doing is editing his work. Um, and so this this comes across kind of like that again, where it's very conversational. And there's just such a difference to me between writing something and then just, you know, spilling things on paper. Yeah. I mean, I, so, I I agree. I I think one one of the reasons why writing uh, is something that I do is because you can I feel like I can put together thoughts much better than writing. It's probably a terrible thing to say on a podcast, but I feel like I, I can put together thoughts much uh, more precisely and clearly in writing than I can just talking. They're different mediums. Yeah. I think that's the biggest thing is is that a lot of times what works in one medium doesn't work in another, and so you have to adapt your style, your approach, your presentation, and your focus. And so it, it just not, not my kind of book. And I, I don't even think I'll put it this way. I can't even bring myself to listen to him do interviews with other people talking about this book because it would just make me angry. So I, I, I feel like, uh, I feel like it's going to stick with me for a while. <laughs> um, tell me about Kavita. Somebody Debbie. send help to Chris Jericho wherever he is. Give him, get, a, get, get some shovels. Oh man. Uh, anyway, yeah, let's me, talk about Kavita Devi. Dev, is it Devi yeah. or Devi? Anyway, it, uh, she is the uh, the wrestler who wrestled in the uh, Mae Young Classic. She's from India, um, which is a, a very important country to WWE lately, as we know. 
Jinder Mahal, who is of Indian descent, is the current WWE champion. And a large factor of why he is the WWE champion is because he's of Indian descent, and WWE wants to get into the country of India with its 1.3 billion people, who they want to make all WWE fans. Um, so this uh, Kavita Devi, she's had not that many matches. It, it, it looks like, I've, I've, I think I looked up her cage match, and the only match on her cage match right now is the Mae Young Classic match, although she has had other matches, of course, because cage yeah, matches doesn't necessarily tra- capture everything. Uh, she, she trained she at trained Great with, Khali School, right? Yeah, she trained She trained at the, the CWE Academy or the Great Khali Academy, uh, where, who, who actually did the training there? Do you remember off the top of my head? I don't. But she was on our list of people that went to the Dubai tryout. Yeah, so there, in, in April there was a tryout in, in Dubai, and she was one of the one, one of the participants in the uh, in the tryout, and apparently that's how she ended up here in the Mae Young Classic. How many people have watched her Mae Young Classic match on YouTube? Uh, let's look. Let's let's right up to the minute on uh, Thursday evening here. Uh, we're at four point two million or so. Oh. You you mean you mean four forty two thousand right? No, four point two million. Wait, but that's ridiculous. The only clips that get like a million things is when like Undertaker is is right. fighting Braun Strowman or, or something. Or, yeah, Braun Strowman and Brock Lesnar did an angle that I think it's at five million uh, a couple weeks out here. Uh, or oh, that one where Cena and Nikki Bella promised to get naked. Yeah, that's a big one. Uh, or B- battle royals do really well. They're, they've got really? some, yeah, they've got some battle royals that that are in uh, like like sixty million or something like that. Um, you gotta check it out. You could, you, oh, Maybe I'm, I have to believe it's because like uh, Fightful or uh, Wrestling Inc. or one of these websites use it as their like load-in thing, where you know they always force you to put a video with your article, yeah. and so battle royals are nice because then you know they 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 have whoever you're talking about was probably in that battle royal. I, I get the sense that the thumbnail has a lot to do with it because there's some that have you know it's it's a thumbnail of a ring full of wrestlers and that maybe just something about that connects with a really mainstream, a, a really non-wrestling fan type of person's idea of what pro wrestling is, or like, oh my god, there's all these people in the ring. Anyway. Um, yeah, well, that's a visceral. I get that. But three million views. So she's got an enormous amount of attention and to put that, for someone and to put who, that in context, who did one round. Yeah, and to put that in context, so as, you, as people may know, just about any match that appears on WTV, whether it's Raw, SmackDown, NXT, Mae Young Classic, Uh, If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 